Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 112, The Flail from Heaven. A countryman was once going out to plough with a pair of oxen. When he got to the field, both the animal's horns began to grow and went on growing and when he wanted to go home, they were so big that the oxen could not get through the gateway for them. By good luck a butcher came by just then, and he delivered them over to him, and made the bargain in this way, that he should take the butcher a measure of turnip seed, and then the butcher was to count him out a brabant fala for every seed. I call that well sold. The peasant now went home and carried the measure of turnip seed to him on his back. On the way, however, he lost one seed out of the bag. The butcher paid him justly as agreed on, and if the peasant had not lost the seed, he would have had one fowler the more. In the meantime, when he went on his way back, the seed had grown into a tree which reached up to the sky. Then thought the peasant, As you have the chance, you must just see what the angels are doing up there above, and for once have them before your eyes. So he climbed up and saw that the angels above were threshing oats, and he looked on. While he was thus watching them, he observed that the tree on which he was standing was beginning to totter. He peeped down and saw that someone was just going to cut it down. If I were to fall down from here, it would be a bad thing, thought he, and in his necessity he did not know how to save himself better than by taking the shaft of the oats which lay there in heaps and twisting a rope of it. He likewise snatched a hoe and a flail, which were lying there about in heaven, and let himself down by the rope. But he came down on the earth exactly in the middle of a deep, deep hole. So it was a real piece of luck that he had brought the hoe, for he hoed himself a flight of steps with it, and mounted up and took the flail with him as a token of his truth, so that no one could have any doubt of his story. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 113. The Two King's Children there was once on a time a king who had a little boy of whom it had been foretold that he should be killed by a stag when he was sixteen years of age, and when he had reached that age the hunters once went hunting with him. In the forest the king's son was separated from the others, and all at once he saw a great stag which he wanted to shoot but could not hit. At length he chased the stag so far that they were quite out of the forest, and then suddenly a great tall man was standing there instead of the stag, and said, It is well that I have you. I have already ruined six pairs of glass skates, 
with running after you and have not been able to get you. Then he took the king's son with him and dragged him through a great lake to a great palace and then he had to sit down to table with him and eat something. When they'd eaten something together, the king said, I have three daughters. You must keep watch over the eldest for one night, from nine in the evening till six in the morning. And every time the clock strikes, I will come myself and call. And if you then give me no answer, tomorrow morning you shall be put to death. But if you always give me an answer, you shall have her as wife. When the young folks went to the bedroom, there stood a stone image of St. Christopher, and the king's daughter said to it, My father will come at nine o'clock, and every hour till it strikes three. When he calls, give him an answer instead of the king's son. Then the stone image of St. Christopher nodded its head quite quickly, and then more and more slowly, till at last it stood still. The next morning the king said to him, You have done the business well, but I cannot give my daughter away. You must now watch a night by my second daughter, and then I will consider with myself whether you can have my eldest daughter to wed. But I shall come every hour myself, and when I call you, answer me, and if I call you and you do not reply, your blood shall flow. Then they both went into the bedroom, and there stood a still larger stone image of St. Christopher, and the king's daughter said to it, If my father calls, do answer him. Then the great stone image of St. Christopher again nodded its head quite quickly, and then more and more slowly, until at last it stood still again. And the king's son lay down on the threshold, put his hand under his head, and slept. The next morning the king said to him, You have done the business really well, but I cannot give my daughter away. You must now watch a night by the youngest princess, and then I will consider with myself whether you can have my second daughter to wife. But I shall come every hour myself, and when I call you, answer me, and if I call you, and you answer not, your blood shall flow for me. Then they once more went to the bedroom together, and there was a much greater and much taller image of St. Christopher than the first two had been. The king's daughter said to it, When my father calls, do answer. Then the great tall stone image of St. Christopher nodded quite half an hour with its head, until at length the head stood still again, and the king's son laid himself down on the threshold of the door and slept. The next morning the king said, You have indeed watched well, but I cannot give you my daughter now. I have a great forest. If you cut it down for me between six o'clock this morning and six at night, I will think about it. Then he gave him a glass axe, a glass wedge and a glass mallet. When he got into the wood, he began at once to cut, but the axe broke in two. Then he took the wedge and struck it once with the mallet, and it became as short and as small as sand. 
Then he was much troubled and believed he would have to die, and sat down and wept. Now when it was noon, the king said, One of you girls must take him something to eat. No, said the two eldest, we will not take it to him. The one by whom he last watched can take him something. Then the youngest was forced to go and take him something to eat. When she got into the forest, she asked him how he was getting on. Oh, said he, I'm getting on very badly. Then she said he was to come and just eat a little. Nay, said he, I cannot do that. I shall still have to die, so I will eat no more. Then she spoke so kindly to him and begged him just to try that he came and ate something. When he had eaten something, she said, I will comb your hair a while, and then you will feel happier. So she combed his hair, and he became weary and fell asleep. And then she took her handkerchief and made a knot in it, and struck it three times on the earth, and said, Earth workers come forth. In a moment, numbers of little earth men came forth and asked what the king's daughter commanded. Then said she, In three hours' time the great forest must be cut down, and the whole of the wood laid in heaps. So the little earth men went about and got together the whole of their kindred to help them with the work. They began at once, and when the three hours were over, all was done. And they came back to the king's daughter and told her so. Then she took her white handkerchief again and said, Earth workers, go home. At this they all disappeared. When the king's son awoke, he was delighted, and she said, Come home when it has struck six o'clock. He did as she told him, and then the king asked, Have you made away with the forest? Yes, said the king's son. When they were sitting at table, the king said, I cannot yet give you my daughter to marry. You must still do something more for her sake. So he asked what it was to be then. I have a great fish pond, said the king. You must go to it tomorrow morning and clear it of all mud until it is as bright as a mirror and fill it with every kind of fish. The next morning the king gave him a glass shovel and said the fish pond must be done by six o'clock. So he went away, and when he came to the fish pond he struck his shovel in the mud and it broke in two. Then he stuck his hoe in the mud and broke it also. Then he was much troubled. At noon the youngest daughter brought him something to eat and asked him how he was getting on. So the king's son said everything was going very ill with him and he would certainly have to lose his head. My tools have broken to pieces again. Oh, said she, you must just come and eat something and then you will be in another frame of mind. No, said he, I cannot eat. I am far too unhappy for that. Then she gave him many good words until at last he came and ate something. Then she combed his hair again 
and he fell asleep. So once more she took her handkerchief, tied a knot in it, and struck the ground thrice with the knot, and said, Earth workers come forth. In a moment, a great many little earth men came and asked what she desired, and she told them that in three hours' time they must have the fish pond entirely cleaned out, and it must be so clear that people could see themselves reflected in it, and every kind of fish must be in it. The little earthmen went away and summoned all their kindred to help them, and in two hours it was done. Then they returned to her and said, We have done as you have commanded. The king's daughter took the handkerchief and once more struck thrice on the ground with it and said, Earth workers, go home again. Then they all went away. When the king's son awoke, the fish pond was done. Then the king's daughter went away also and told him that when it was six, he was to come to the house. When he arrived at the house, the king asked, Have you got the fish pond done? Yes, said the king's son. That was very good. When they were again sitting at table, the king said, You have certainly done the fish pond, but I cannot give you my daughter yet. You must just do one more thing. What is that then? asked the king's son. The king said he had a great mountain, on which there were nothing but briars, which must all be cut down, and at the top of it the youth must build up a great castle, which must be as strong as could be conceived, and all the furniture and fittings belonging to a castle must be inside it. And when he arose next morning, the king gave him a glass axe and a glass gimlet with him, and he was to have all done by six o'clock. As he was cutting down the first briar with the axe, it broke off short, and so small that the pieces flew all round about, and he could not use the gimlet either. Then he was quite miserable and waited for his dearest to see if she would not come and help him in his need. When it was midday, she came and brought him something to eat. He went to meet her and told her all, and ate something, and let her comb his hair, and fell asleep. Then she once more took the knot, and struck the earth with it, and said, Earth workers come forth. Then came once again numbers of earthmen, and asked what her desire was. Then said she, In the space of three hours they must cut down the whole of the briars, and a castle must be built on the top of the mountain that must be as strong as any one could conceive, and all the furniture that pertains to a castle must be inside it. They went away and summoned their kindred to help them, and when the time came, all was ready. Then they came to the king's daughter and told her so, and the king's daughter took her handkerchief and struck thrice on the earth with it and said, Earth workers go home, at which they all disappeared. When therefore the king's son awoke and saw everything done, he was as happy as a bird in air. When it had struck six, they went home together. Then said the king, Is the castle ready? Yes, said the king's son. 
When they sat down to table, the king said, I cannot give away my youngest daughter until the two eldest are married. Then the king's son and the king's daughter were quite troubled, and the king's son had no idea what to do. But he went by night to the king's daughter and ran away with her. When they had got a little distance away, the king's daughter peeped round and saw her father behind her. Oh, said she, what are we to do? My father is behind us and will take us back with him. I will at once change you into a briar and myself into a rose and I will shelter myself in the middle of the bush. When the father reached the place, there stood a briar with one rose on it. Then he was about to gather the rose when the fawn came and pricked his finger so that he was forced to go home again. His wife asked why he had not brought their daughter back with him. So he said he had nearly got up to her, but that all at once he had lost sight of her, and a briar with one rose was growing on the spot. Then said the queen, If you had but gathered the rose, the briar would have been forced to come too. So he went back again to fetch the rose, but in the meantime the two were already far over the plain, and the king ran after them. Then the daughter once more looked round and saw her father coming and said, Oh, what shall we do now? I will instantly change you into a church and myself into a priest, and I will stand up in the pulpit and preach. When the king got to the place, there stood a church, and in the pulpit was a priest preaching. So he listened to the sermon and then went home again. Then the queen asked why he had not brought their daughter with him, and he said, Nay, I ran a long time after her, and just as I thought I should soon overtake her, a church was standing there, and a priest was in the pulpit preaching. You should have brought the priest, said his wife, and then the church would soon have come. It is no use to send you, I must go there myself. When she had walked for some time, and could see the two in the distance, the king's daughter peeped round and saw her mother coming and said, Now we are undone, for my mother is coming herself. I will immediately change you into a fish pond and myself into a fish. When the mother came to the place, there was a large fish pond, and in the middle of it a fish was leaping about and peeping out of the water, and it was quite merry. She wanted to catch the fish, but she could not. Then she was very angry, and drank up the whole pond in order to catch the fish. But it made her so ill that she was forced to vomit, and vomited the whole pond out again. Then she cried, I see very well that nothing can be done now, and asked them now to come back to her. Then the king's daughter went back again, and the queen gave her daughter three walnuts, and said, With these you can help yourself when you are in your greatest need. So the young folks went away together once more. And when they had walked quite ten miles, they arrived at the castle from whence the king's son came, and close by it was a village. When they reached it, the king's son said, Stay here, my dearest, 
I will just go to the castle, and then will I come with a carriage and with attendants to fetch you. When he got to the castle, they all rejoiced greatly at having the king's son back again, and he told them he had a bride who was now in the village, and they must go with the carriage to fetch her. Then they harnessed the horses at once, and many attendants seated themselves outside the carriage. When the king's son was about to get in, his mother gave him a kiss, and he forgot everything which had happened, and also what he was about to do. At this his mother ordered the horses to be taken out of the carriage again, and everyone went back into the house. But the maiden sat in the village and watched and watched and thought he would come and fetch her, but no one came. Then the king's daughter took service in the mill, which belonged to the castle, and was obliged to sit by the pond every afternoon and clean the tubs. And the queen came one day on foot from the castle and went walking by the pond and saw the well-grown maiden sitting there and said, What a fine, strong girl that is. She pleases me well. Then she and all with her looked at the maid, but no one knew her. So a long time passed by, during which the maiden served the miller honourably and faithfully. In the meantime... The queen had sought a wife for her son, who came from quite a distant part of the world. When the bride came, they were at once to be married, and many people hurried together, all of whom wanted to see everything. Then the girl said to the miller that he might be so good as to give her leave to go also. So the miller said, Yes, do go there. When she was about to go, she opened one of the three walnuts, and a beautiful dress lay inside it. She put it on, and went into the church, and stood by the altar. Suddenly came the bride and bridegroom, and seated themselves before the altar, and when the priest was just going to bless them, the bride peeped half round and saw the maiden standing there. Then she stood up again, and said she would not be given away until she also had as beautiful a dress as that lady there. So they went back to the house again, and sent to ask the lady if she would sell that dress. No, she would not sell it, but the bride might perhaps earn it. Then the bride asked her how she was to do this. Then the maiden said if she might sleep one night outside the king's son's door... The bride might have what she wanted. So the bride said, Yes, she was willing to do that. But the servants were ordered to give the king's son a sleeping potion, and then the maiden laid herself down on the threshold and lamented all night long. She had had the forest cut down for him, she had had the fish pond cleaned out for him, she had had the castle built for him, she had changed him into a briar, and then into a church, and at last into a fish pond, and yet he had forgotten her so quickly. The king's son did not hear one word of it, but the servants had been awakened, and had listened to it, and had not known what it could mean.
The next morning, when they were all up, the bride put on the dress and went away to the church with the bridegroom. In the meantime, the maiden opened the second walnut and a still more beautiful dress was inside it. She put it on and went and stood by the altar in the church. And everything happened as it had happened the time before. And the maiden again lay all night on the threshold which led to the chamber of the king's son and the servant was once more to give him a sleeping potion. The servant, however, went to him and gave him something to keep him awake. And then the king's son went to bed, and the miller's maiden bemoaned herself as before on the threshold of the door, and told of all that she had done. All this the king's son heard, and was sore troubled, and what was past came back to him. Then he wanted to go to her, but his mother had locked the door. The next morning, however, he went at once to his beloved, and told her everything which had happened to him, and prayed her not to be angry with him for having forgotten her. Then the king's daughter opened the third walnut, and within it was a still more magnificent dress, which she put on, and went with her bridegroom to church, and numbers of children came, who gave them flowers, and offered them gay ribbons, to bind about their feet, and they were blessed by the priest, and had a merry wedding. But the false mother, and the bride she had chosen, had to depart, and the mouth of the person who last told all this is still warm. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 114. The Cunning Little Tailor There was once on a time a princess who was extremely proud. If a wooer came, she gave him some riddle to guess. And if he could not find it out he was sent contemptuously away. She let it be made known also that whoever solved her riddle should marry her. Let him be who he might. At length, therefore, three tailors fell in with each other, the two eldest of whom thought they had done so many dexterous bits of work successfully that they could not fail to succeed in this also. The third was a little useless scamp, who did not even know his trade, but thought he must have some luck in this venture, for where else was it to come from? Then the two others said to him, Just stay at home, you cannot do much with your little bit of understanding. The little tailor, however, did not let himself be discouraged, and said he had set his head to work about this for once, and he would manage well enough, and he went forth as if the whole world were his. They all three announced themselves to the princess, and said she was to propound her riddle to them, and that the right persons had now come, who had understanding so fine that they could be threaded in a needle. Then said the princess, I have two kinds of hair on my head. Of what colour is it? If that be all, said the first, it must be black and white, like the cloth which is called pepper and salt. The princess said, 
wrongly guessed. Let the second answer. Then said the second, If it be not black and white, then it is brown and red, like my father's company coat. Wrongly guessed, said the princess, let the third give the answer, for I see very well he knows it for certain. Then the little tailor stepped boldly forth and said, The princess has a silver and a golden hair on her head, and those are the two different colours. When the princess heard that, she turned pale and nearly fell down with terror, for the little tailor had guessed her riddle, and she had firmly believed that no man on earth could discover it. When her courage returned, she said, You have not won me yet by that. There is still something else that you must do. Below in the stable is a bear, with which you shall pass the night. And when I get up in the morning, if you are still alive, you shall marry me. She expected, however, she should thus get rid of the tailor, for the bear had never yet left anyone alive who had fallen into his clutches. The little tailor did not let himself be frightened away, but was quite delighted, and said, Boldly ventured is half one. When therefore the evening came, our little tailor was taken down to the bear. The bear was about to set at the little fellow at once, and give him a hearty welcome with his paws. Softly, softly, said the little tailor, I will soon make you quiet. Then quite composedly, and as if he had not an anxiety in the world, he took some nuts out of his pocket, cracked them, and ate the kernels. When the bear saw that, he was seized with a desire to have some nuts too. The tailor felt in his pockets and reached him a handful. They were, however, not nuts but pebbles. The bear put them in his mouth but could get nothing out of them. Let him bite as he would. Eh, thought he, what a stupid blockhead I am. I cannot even crack a nut. And then he said to the tailor, Here, crack me the nuts. There, see what a stupid fellow you are, said the little tailor, to have such a great mouth and not be able to crack a small nut. Then he took a pebble and nimbly put a nut in his mouth in the place of it, and crack, it was in two. I must try the thing again, said the bear. When I watch you, I then think I ought to be able to do it too. So the tailor once more gave him a pebble, and the bear tried and tried to bite into it with all the strength of his body. But no one will imagine that he accomplished it. When that was over, the tailor took out a violin from beneath his coat and played a piece on it to himself. When the bear heard the music, he could not help beginning to dance, and when he had danced a while, the thing pleased him so well that he said to the little tailor, Is the fiddle heavy? Light enough for a child. Look with the left hand. I lay my fingers on it, and with the right I stroke it with the bow. And then it goes merrily, hop, sa, sa, vivala, lira. So, said the bear, 
fiddling is a thing I should like to understand too, that I might dance whenever I have a fancy. What do you think of that? Will you give me lessons? With all my heart, said the tailor, if you have a talent for it, but just let me see your claws. They are terribly long. I must cut your nails a little. Then a vise was brought, and the bear put his claws in it, and the little tailor screwed it tight and said, Now, wait until I come with the scissors. And he let the bear growl as he liked, and lay down in the corner on a bundle of straw, and fell asleep. When the princess heard the bear growling so fiercely during the night, she believed nothing else but that he was growling for joy, and had made an end of the tailor. In the morning she arose careless and happy, but when she peeped into the stable the tailor stood gaily before her, and was as healthy as a fish in water. Now she could not say another word against the wedding because she had given a promise before everyone and the king ordered a carriage to be brought in which she was to drive to church with the tailor and there she was to be married. When they had got into the carriage the two other tailors who had false hearts and envied him his good fortune went into the stable and unscrewed the bear again. The bear, in great fury, ran after the carriage. The princess heard him snorting and growling. She was terrified, and she cried, Ah, the bear is behind us and wants to get you. The tailor was quick and stood on his head, stuck his legs out of the window and cried, Do you see the vise? If you do not be off, you shall be put into it again. When the bear saw that, he turned round and ran away. The tailor drove quietly to church, and the princess was married to him at once, and he lived with her as happy as a woodlark. Whoever does not believe this must pay a farla. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt Read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 115. The Bright Sun Brings It to Light A tailor's apprentice was travelling about the world in search of work, and at one time he could find none, and his poverty was so great that he had not a farthing to live on. Presently he met a Jew on the road, and as he thought he would have a great deal of money about him, the tailor thrust God out of his heart, fell on the Jew, and said, Give me your money, or I will strike you dead. Then said the Jew, Grant me my life, I have no money but eight farthings. But the tailor said, Money you have, and it shall be produced and used violence, and beat him until he was near death. And when the Jew was dying, the last words he said were, The bright sun will bring it to light, and thereupon he died. The tailor's apprentice felt in his pockets and sought for money, but he found nothing but eight farthings, as the Jew had said.
Then he took him up and carried him behind a clump of trees and went onwards to seek work. After he had travelled about a long while, he got work in a town with a master who had a pretty daughter with whom he fell in love and he married her and lived in good and happy wedlock. After a long time when he and his wife had two children, the wife's father and mother died and the young people kept house alone. One morning when the husband was sitting on the table before the window, his wife brought him his coffee, and when he had poured it out into the saucer, and was just going to drink, the sun shone on it, and the reflection gleamed here and there on the wall above, and made circles on it. Then the tailor looked up and said, Yes, it would like very much to bring it to light, and cannot. The woman said, O oh dear husband, what is that then? What do you mean by that? He answered, I must not tell you. But she said, If you love me, you must tell me, and used her most affectionate words, and said that no one should ever know it, and left him no rest. Then he told her how years ago, when he was travelling about, seeking work, and quite worn out and penniless, he had killed a Jew, and that in the last agonies of death, the Jew had spoken the words, The bright sun will bring it to light. And now the sun had just wanted to bring it to light, and had gleamed and made circles on the wall, but had not been able to do it. After this, he again charged her particularly never to tell this, or he would lose his life, and she did promise. When, however, he had sat down to work again, she went to her great friend and confided the story to her. But she was never to repeat it to any human being. But before two days were over, the whole town knew it, and the tailor was brought to trial and condemned. And thus, after all, the bright sun did bring it to light. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 116. The Blue Light. There was once on a time a soldier who for many years had served the king faithfully, but when the war came to an end, could serve no longer because of the many wounds which he had received. The king said to him, You may return to your home. I need you no longer, and you will not receive any more money, for he only receives wages who renders me service for them. Then the soldier did not know how to earn a living, went away greatly troubled, and walked the whole day until the evening he entered a forest. When darkness came on, he saw a light, which he went up to and came to a house where a witch lived. Do give me one night's lodging and a little to eat and drink, said he to her, or I shall starve. Oh ho, she answered, who gives anything to a runaway soldier? 
yet I will be compassionate and take you in, if you will do what I wish. What do you wish, said the soldier, that you should dig all round my garden for me tomorrow? The soldier consented, and next day laboured with all his strength, but could not finish it by the evening. I see well enough, said the witch, that you can do no more today, but I will keep you yet another night, in payment for which you must tomorrow chop me a load of wood and make it small. The soldier spent the whole day in doing it, and in the evening the witch proposed that he should stay one night more. Tomorrow you shall only do me a very trifling piece of work. Behind my house there is an old dried well, into which my light has fallen. It burns blue and never goes out, and you shall bring it up again for me. Next day the old woman took him to the well and let him down in a basket. He found the blue light and made her a signal to draw him up again. She did draw him up, but when he came near the edge, she stretched down her hand and wanted to take the blue light away from him. No, said he, perceiving her evil intention, I will not give you the light until I am standing with both feet upon the ground. The witch fell into a passion, let him down again into the well and went away. The poor soldier fell without injury on the moist ground, and the blue light went on burning, but of what use was that to him? He saw very well that he could not escape death. He sat for a while very sorrowfully, then suddenly he felt in his pocket and found his tobacco pipe, which was still half full. This shall be my last pleasure, thought he, pulled it out, lit it at the blue light, and began to smoke. When the smoke had circled about the cavern, suddenly a little black dwarf stood before him and said, Lord, what are your commands? What commands have I to give you, replied the soldier, quite astonished. I must do everything you bid me, said the dwarf. Good, said the soldier. Then, in the first place, help me out of this well. The dwarf took him by the hand and led him through an underground passage, but he did not forget to take the blue light with him. On the way, the dwarf showed him the treasures which the witch had collected and hidden there, and the soldier took as much gold as he could carry. When he was above, he said to the dwarf, Now go and bind the old witch, and carry her before the judge. In a short time, she, with frightful cries, came riding by, as swift as the wind, on a wild tomcat, and not long after that, the dwarf reappeared. It is all done, said he, and the witch is already hanging on the gallows. 
What further commands does my lord have? inquired the dwarf. At this moment none, answered the soldier. You can return home. Only be at hand immediately if I summon you. Nothing more is needed than that you should light your pipe at the blue light and I will appear before you at once. Thereupon he vanished from his sight. The soldier returned to the town from which he had come. He went to the best inn, ordered himself handsome clothes, and then bade the landlord furnish him a room as handsomely as possible. When it was ready, and the soldier had taken possession of it, he summoned the little black dwarf and said, I have served the king faithfully, but he has dismissed me and left me to hunger, and now I want to take my revenge. What am I to do? asked the dwarf. Late at night, when the king's daughter is in bed, bring her here in her sleep. She shall do servants' work for me. The dwarf said, That is an easy thing for me to do, but a very dangerous thing for you, for if it is discovered, you will fare ill. When twelve o'clock had struck, the door sprang open and the dwarf carried in the princess. Aha! Are you there? cried the soldier. Get to your work at once. Fetch the broom and sweep the chamber. When she had done this, he ordered her to come to his chair, and then he stretched out his feet and said, Pull off my boots for me. And then he threw them in her face and made her pick them up again and clean and brighten them. She, however, did everything he bade her without opposition silently and with half-shut eyes. When the first cock crowed, the dwarf carried her back to the royal palace and laid her in her bed. Next morning, when the princess arose, she went to her father and told him that she had had a very strange dream. I was carried through the streets with the rapidity of lightning, said she, and taken into a soldier's room, and I had to wait upon him like a servant, sweep his room, clean his boots, and do all kinds of menial work. It was only a dream, and yet I am just as tired as if I really had done everything. The dream may have been true, said the king. I will give you a piece of advice. Fill your pocket full of peas and make a small hole in it. And then, if you are carried away again, they will fall out and leave a track in the streets. But unseen by the king, the dwarf was standing beside him when he said that and heard all. At night, when the sleeping princess was again carried through the streets, some peas certainly did fall out, of her pocket, but they made no track, for the crafty dwarf had just before scattered peas in every street there was, and again the princess was compelled to do servant's work until the cock crowed. Next morning the king sent his people out to seek the track 
but it was all in vain, for in every street poor children were sitting, picking up peas and saying, It must have rained peas last night. We must think of something else, said the king. Keep your shoes on when you go to bed, and before you come back from the place where you are taken, hide one of them there. I will soon contrive to find it. The black dwarf heard this plot, and at night, when the soldier again ordered him to bring the princess, revealed it to him, and told him that he knew of no expedient to counteract this stratagem, and that if the shoe were found in the soldier's house, it would go badly with him. Do what I bid you, replied the soldier, and again this third night the princess was obliged to work like a servant, but before she went away, she hid her shoe under the bed. Next morning, the king had the entire town searched for his daughter's shoe. It was found at the soldiers and the soldier himself, who at the entreaty of the dwarf had gone outside the gate, was soon brought back and thrown into prison. In his flight, he had forgotten the most valuable things he had, the blue light and the gold, and had only one ducat in his pocket, and now loaded with chains, he was sitting at the window of his dungeon, when he chanced to see one of his comrades passing by. The soldier tapped at the pane of glass, and when the man came up and said to him, be so kind as to fetch me the small bundle I have left lying in the inn, and I will give you a ducat for doing it. His comrade ran there and brought him what he wanted. As soon as the soldier was alone again, he lighted his pipe and summoned the black dwarf. Have no fear, said the latter to his master. Go wherever they take you, and let them do what they will. Only take the blue light with you. The next day the soldier was tried, and though he had done nothing wicked, the judge condemned him to death. When he was led forth to die, he begged a last favour of the king. What is it? asked the king. That I may smoke one more pipe on my way. You may smoke free, answered the king, but do not imagine that I will spare your life. Then the soldier pulled out his pipe and lighted it at the blue light, and as soon as a few reefs of smoke had ascended, the dwarf was there with a small cudgel in his hand and said, What does my lord command? Strike down to earth that false judge there and his constable, and spare not the king who has treated me so ill. Then the dwarf fell on them like lightning, darting this way and that way, and whoever was so much as touched by his cudgel fell to earth and did not venture to stir again. The king was terrified, he threw himself on the soldier's mercy, and merely to be allowed to live at all, gave him his kingdom for his own, and the princess to marry. 
Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 117. The Willful Child. Once upon a time there was a child who was willful, and would not do as her mother wished. For this reason God had no pleasure in her, and let her become ill, and no doctor could do her any good and in a short time she lay on her deathbed. When she'd been lowered into her grave, and the earth was spread over her, all at once her arm came out again, and stretched upwards, and when they had put it in, and spread fresh earth over it, it was all to no purpose, for the arm always came out again. Then the mother herself was obliged to go to the grave, and strike the arm with a rod, and when she had done that, it was drawn in, and then at last the child had rest beneath the ground. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 118. The Free Army Surgeons. Three army surgeons, who thought they knew their art perfectly, were travelling about the world, and they came to an inn where they wanted to pass the night. The host asked whence they came from and where they were going. We are roaming about the world and practising our art. Just show me for once what you can do, said the host. Then the first said he would cut off his own hand and put it in again early next morning. The second said he would tear out his heart and replace it next morning. The third said he would cut out his eyes and heal them again next morning. If you do that, said the innkeeper, you have learned everything. They, however, had a salve with which they rubbed themselves, which joined parts together, and they carried the little bottle in which it was constantly with them. Then they cut the hand, heart and eyes from their bodies, as they had said they would, and laid them all together on a plate, and gave it to the innkeeper. The innkeeper gave it to a servant, who was to set it in the cupboard, and take good care of it. The girl, however, had a lover, in secret, who was a soldier. When therefore the innkeeper, the free army surgeons, and everyone else in the house was asleep, the soldier came and wanted something to eat. The girl opened the cupboard and brought him some food, and in her love forgot to shut the cupboard door again. She seated herself at the table by her lover, and they chatted away together. While she sat so contentedly there, thinking of no ill luck, the cat came creeping in and found the cupboard open, took the hand and heart and eyes of the free army surgeons and ran off with them. When the soldier had done eating, and the girl was taking away the things and going to shut the cupboard, she saw that the plate which the innkeeper had given her to take care of was empty. Then she said in a fright to her lover, Ah, miserable girl, what shall I do? The hand is gone, the heart and the eyes are gone too. What will become of me in the morning? Be easy, said he. I will help you out of your trouble. There is a thief hanging outside on the gallows. I will cut off his hand. Which hand was it? The right one.
Then the girl gave him a sharp knife, and he went and cut the poor sinner's right hand off, and brought it to her. After this he caught the cat, and cut its eyes out, and now nothing that the heart was wanting. Have you not been slaughtering, and are not the dead pigs in the cellar? said he. Yes, said the girl. That's well, said the soldier, and he went down and fetched a pig's heart. The girl placed all together on the plate, and put it in the cupboard, and when, after this, her lover took leave of her, she went quietly to bed. In the morning, when the free army surgeons got up, they told the girl she was to bring them the plate on which the hand, heart and eyes were lying. Then she brought it out of the cupboard, and the first fixed the thief's hand on, and smeared it with his salve, and it grew to his arm directly. The second took the cat's eyes, and put them in his own head. The third fixed the pig's heart firmly in the place where his own had been, and the innkeeper stood by, admired their skill, and said he had never yet seen such a thing as that done and would sing their praises and recommend them to everyone. Then they paid their bill and travelled farther. As they went on their way, the one with the pig's heart did not stay with them at all. But wherever there was a corner, he ran to it and rooted about in it with his nose, as pigs do. The others wanted to hold him back, but the tail of his coat, but that did no good. He tore himself loose and ran wherever the dirt was thickest. The second also behaved very strangely. He rubbed his eyes and said to the others, Comrades, what is the matter? I don't see it all. Will one of you lead me, so that I do not fall? Then with difficulty they travelled on till evening, when they reached another inn. They went into the bar together, and there was a table in the corner sat a rich man counting money. The one with the thief's hand walked round about him, made a sudden movement twice with his arm, and at last when the stranger turned away he snatched at the pile of money, and took a handful from it. One of them saw this and said, Comrade, what are you about? You must not steal. Shame on you. Eh? said he, but how can I stop myself? My hand twitches and I am forced to snatch things wherever I want to or not. After this they lay down to sleep, and while they were lying there it was so dark that no one could see his own hand. All at once the one with the cat's eyes awoke, aroused the others and said, Brothers, just look up. Do you see the white mice running about there? The two sat up, but could see nothing. Then said he, Things are not right with us. We have not got back again what is ours. We must return to the innkeeper. He has deceived us. They went back therefore the next morning and told the host they had not got what was their own again that the first had a thief's hand, the second cat's eyes, and the third a pig's heart. The innkeeper 
said that the girl must be to blame for that and was going to call her. But when she had seen the free coming, she had run out by the back door and not come back. Then the free said he must give them a great deal of money or they would set his house on fire. He gave them what he had and whatever he could get together and the free went away with it. It was enough for the rest of their lives, but they would rather have had their own proper organs. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 119, The Seven Swabians. Seven Swabians were once together. The first was Master Schultz, the second Jackley, the third Marley, the fourth Jurgley, the fifth Michel, the sixth Hans, the seventh Vaitley. All seven had made up their minds to travel about the world to seek adventures and perform great deeds. But in order that they might go in security and with arms in their hands, they thought it would be advisable that they should have one solitary but very strong and very long spear made for them. This spear all seven of them took in their hands at once. In front walked the boldest and bravest, and that was Master Schultz. All the others followed in a row, and Vately was the last. Then it came to pass one day, in the haymaking month, July, when they had walked a long distance and still had a long way to go before they reached the village where they were to pass the night, that as they were in a meadow in the twilight, a great beetle or hornet flew by them from behind a bush and hummed in a menacing manner. Master Schultz was so terrified that he all but dropped the spear, and a cold perspiration broke out over his whole body. Listen, listen, cried he to his comrades. Good heavens, I hear a drum. Jack Lee, who was behind him holding the spear, and who perceived some kind of a smell, said, Something is most certainly going on, for I taste powder and matches. At these words, Master Schultz began to take to flight, and in a moment jumped over a hedge, but as he just happened to jump onto the teeth of a rake, which had been left lying there after the haymaking, the handle of it struck against his face and gave him a tremendous blow. Oh dear, oh dear, screamed Master Schultz, take me prisoner, I surrender, I surrender. The other six all leapt over, one on the top of the other, crying, If you surrender, I surrender too. If you surrender, I surrender too. At length, as no enemy was there to bind and take them away, they saw that they had been mistaken, and in order that the story might not be known, and they be treated as fools and ridiculed, they all swore to each other to hold their peace about it until one of them accidentally spoke of it. 
Then they journeyed onwards. The second danger which they survived cannot be compared with the first. Some days afterwards their path led them through a fallow field where a hare was sitting sleeping in the sun. Her ears were standing straight up, and her great glassy eyes were wide open. All of them were alarmed at the sight of the horrible wild beast, and they consulted together as to what would be the least dangerous thing to do. For if they were to run away, they knew that the monster would pursue and swallow them whole. So they said, we must go through a great and dangerous struggle. Boldly ventured is half one, and all seven grasped the spear, Master Schultz in front and Vately behind. Master Schultz was always trying to keep the spear back, but Vately had become quite brave while behind and wanted to dash forward and cried, Strike home in every Swabian's name, or else I wish you may be lame. But Hans knew how to meet this and said, Thunder and lightning, it's fine to prate, but for dragon hunting, you're too late. Mikkel cried, Nothing is wanting, not even a hair. Be sure the devil himself is there. Then it was Jurgli's turn to speak. If it be not, it's at least his mother, or else it's the devil's own stepbrother. And now Marley had a bright thought, and said to Vately, Advance, Vately, advance, advance, and I behind will hold the lance. Vately, however, did not attend to that, and Jackley said, "'Tis Schultz's place the first to be. No one deserves that honour but he. Then Master Schultz plucked up his courage, and said gravely, Then let us boldly advance to the fight, and thus we shall show our valour and might. Then they all together set on the dragon. Master Schultz crossed himself and prayed for God's assistance. But as all this was of no avail, and he was getting nearer and nearer to the enemy, he screamed, Oh ho, oh ho, 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 ho! In the greatest anguish this awakened the hare, which in great alarm darted swiftly away. When Master Schultz saw her thus flying from the field of battle, he cried in his joy, Quick, Fately, quick! Look there, look there! The monster's nothing but a hare. But the Swabian allies went in search of further adventures, and came to the Marcel, a mossy, quiet, deep river, over which there are few bridges, and which in many places people have to cross in boats. As the seven Swabians did not know this, they called to a man who was working on the opposite side of the river, to know how people contrived to get across. The distance, and their way of speaking, made the man unable to understand what they wanted, and he said, What, what, in the way people speak in the neighbourhood of Treves? Master Schultz thought he was saying, Wade, wade through the water. And as he was the first, began to set out 
and went into the Moselle. It was not long before he sank in the mud and the deep waves which drove against him, but his hat was blown on the opposite shore by the wind, and a frog sat down beside it and croaked, What, what, what? The other six on the opposite side heard that and said, Oh ho, comrades, Master Schultz is calling us. If he can wade across, why cannot we? So they all jumped into the water together, in a great hurry, and were drowned. And thus one frog took the lives of all six of them. And not one of the Swabian allies ever reached home again. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 120. The Free Apprentices There were once three apprentices who had agreed to keep always together while travelling and always to work in the same town. At one time, however, their masters had no more work to give them, so that at last they were in rags and had nothing to live on. Then one of them said, What shall we do? We cannot stay here any longer. We will travel once more, and if we do not find any work in the town we go to, we will arrange with the innkeeper there that we are to write and tell him where we are staying, so that we can always have news of each other, and then we will separate. And that seemed best to the others also. They went forth and met on the way a richly dressed man who asked who they were. We are apprentices looking for work. Up to this time we have kept together, but if we cannot find anything to do, we are going to separate. There is no need for that, said the man. If you will do what I tell you, you shall not want for gold or for work. Nay, you shall become great lords and drive in your carriages. One of them said, If our souls and salvation are not endangered, we will certainly do it. They are not, replied the man. I have no claim on you. One of the others had, however, looked at his feet, and when he saw a horse's foot and a man's foot, he did not want to have anything to do with him. The devil, however, said, Be easy, I have no designs on you, but on another soul which is half my own already, and will be all mine soon. As they were now secure, they consented, and the devil told them what he wanted. The first was to answer, All three of us, to every question. The second was to say, For money, and the third, And quite right too. They were always to say this, one after the other, But they were not to say one word more, And if they disobeyed this order, all their money would disappear at once. But so long as they observed it, their pockets would always be full. As a beginning, he at once gave them as much as they could carry, and told them to go to such and such an inn when they got to the town. They went to it, and the innkeeper came to meet them, 
and asked if they wished for anything to eat. The first replied, All three of us. Yes, said the host. That is what I mean. The second said, For money. Of course, said the host. The third said, And quite right too. Certainly it is right, said the host. Good meat and drink were now brought to them, and they were well waited on. After the dinner came the payment, and the innkeeper gave the bill to the one who said, All three of us. The second said, For money, and the third, And quite right too. Indeed it is right, said the host. All three pay, and without money I can give nothing. They, however, paid still more than he had asked. The lodgers who were looking on said, These people must be mad. Yes, indeed they are, said the host. They are not very wise. So they stayed some time in the inn, and said nothing else but, All three of us, for money, and quite right too. But they saw and knew all that was going on. It so happened that a great merchant came with a large sum of money, and said, Sir host, take care of my money for me. Here are three crazy apprentices who might steal it from me. The host did as he was asked. As he was carrying the trunk into his room, he felt that it was heavy with gold. Thereupon he gave the three apprentices a lodging below, but the merchant came upstairs into a separate apartment. When it was midnight, and the host thought that all were asleep, he came with his wife, and they had an axe and struck the rich merchant dead, and after they had murdered him, they went to bed again. When it was day, there was a great outcry. The merchant lay dead in bed, bathed in blood. All the guests ran at once, but the host said, The three crazy apprentices have done this. The lodgers confirmed it and said, It can have been no one else. The innkeeper, however, had them called and said to them, Have you killed the merchant? All three of us, said the first. For money, said the second. And the third added, And quite right too. There, now you hear, said the host, They confess it themselves. They were taken to prison, therefore, and were to be tried. When they saw that things were going so seriously, they were after all afraid. But at night the devil came and said, Bear it just one day longer, and do not play away your luck. Not one hair of your head shall be hurt. The next morning, when they were led to the bar, and the judge said, Are you the murderers? All three of us. Why did you kill the merchant? For money. You wicked wretches. You have no horror of your sins. And quite right too. They have confessed and are still stubborn, said the judge. Lead them to death instantly. So they were taken out and the host had to go with them into the circle. 
When they were taken hold of by the executioner's men and were just going to be led up to the scaffold where the headsman was standing with naked sword, a coach drawn by four blood-red chestnut horses came up, suddenly driving so fast that fire flashed from the stones and someone made signs from the window with a white handkerchief. Then said the headsman, It is a pardon coming, and pardon, pardon, was called from the carriage also. Then the devil stepped out as a very noble gentleman, beautifully dressed, and said, You three are innocent, you may now speak, make known what you have seen and heard. Then said the eldest, We did not kill the merchant, the murderer is standing there in the circle, and he pointed to the innkeeper. In proof of this, go into his cellar, where many others whom he has killed are still hanging. Then the judge sent the executioner's men there, and they found it was as the apprentices said. And when they had informed the judge of this, he caused the innkeeper to be led up, and his head was cut off. Then said the devil to the free, Now I have got the soul which I wanted to have, and you are free and have money for the rest of your lives. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 121. The King's Son, Who Feared Nothing There was once a king's son, who was no longer content to stay at home in his father's house, and as he had no fear of anything, he thought, I will go forth into the wide world. There the time will not seem long to me, and I shall see wonders enough. So he took leave of his parents, and went forth, and on and on from morning till night, and whichever way his path led, it was the same to him. It came to pass that he got to the house of a giant, and as he was so tired he sat down by the door and rested. And as he let his eyes roam here and there, he saw the giant's playthings lying in the yard. These were a couple of enormous balls, and nine pins as tall as a man. After a while he had a fancy to set the nine pins up, and then rolled the balls at them, and screamed and cried out when the nine pins fell, and had a merry time of it. The giant heard the noise, stretched his head out of the window, and saw a man who was not taller than other men, and yet played with his nine pins. "'Little worm!' cried he. "'Why are you playing with my balls? Who gave you strength to do it?' The king's son looked up, saw the giant, and said, "'Oh, you blockhead! You think indeed that only you have strong arms. I can do everything I want to do.' The giant came down and watched the bowling with great admiration, and said, "'Child of man, if you are one of that kind, go and bring me an apple of the tree of life.' "'What do you want with that?' said the king's son. "'I do not want the apple for myself,' answered the giant, "'but I have a betrothed bride, 
Who wishes for it? I have travelled far about the world and cannot find the tree. I will soon find it, said the king's son, and I do not know what is to prevent me from getting the apple down. The giant said, You really believe it to be so easy. The garden in which the tree stands is surrounded by an iron railing, and in front of the railing lie wild beasts, each close to the other, and they keep watch and let no man go in. They will be sure to let me in, said the king's son. Yes, but even if you do get into the garden and see the apple hanging to the tree, it is still not yours. A ring hangs in front of it, through which anyone who wants to reach the apple and break it off must put his hand, and no one has yet had the luck to do it. That luck will be mine, said the king's son. Then he took leave of the giant and went forth over mountain and valley and through plains and forests, until at length he came to the wondrous garden. The beasts lay round about it, but they had put their heads down and were asleep. Moreover, they did not awake when he went up to them. So he stepped over them, climbed the fence, and got safely into the garden. There in the very middle of it stood the tree of life, and the red apples were shining upon the branches. He climbed up the trunk to the top, and as he was about to reach out for an apple, he saw a ring hanging before it. But he thrust his hand through that without any difficulty, and gathered the apple. The ring closed tightly on his arm, and all at once he felt a prodigious strength flowing through his veins. When he had come down again from the tree with the apple, he would not climb over the fence, but grasped the great gate, and had no need to shake it more than once before it sprang open with a loud crash. Then he went out, and the lion, which had been lying down before, was awake, and sprang after him, not in rage and fierceness, but following him humbly as its master. The king's son took the giant, the apple he had promised him, and said, See, I have brought it without difficulty. The giant was glad that his desire had been so soon satisfied, hastened to his bride, and gave her the apple for which she had wished. She was a beautiful and wise maiden, and as she did not see the ring on his arm, she said, I shall never believe that you have brought the apple until I see the ring on your arm. The giant said, I have nothing to do but go home and fetch it, and thought it would be easy to take away by force from the weak man what he would not give of his own free will. He therefore demanded the ring from him, but the king's son refused it. Where the apple is, the ring must be also, said the giant. If you will not give it of your own accord, you must fight with me for it. They wrestled with each other for a long time, but the giant could not get the better of the king's son, who was strengthened by the magical power of the ring. Then the giant fought 
of a stratagem and said, I have got warm with fighting, and so have you. We will bathe in the river and cool ourselves before we begin again. The king's son, who knew nothing of falsehood, went with him to the water and pulled off with his clothes the ring also from his arm and sprang into the river. The giant instantly snatched the ring and ran away with it, but the lion, which had observed the theft, pursued the giant, tore the ring out of his hand and brought it back to its master. Then the giant placed himself behind an oak tree, and while the king's son was busy putting on his clothes again, surprised him and put both his eyes out. And now the unhappy king's son stood there and was blind and knew not how to help himself. Then the giant came back to him, took him by the hand as if he was someone who wanted to guide him and led him to the top of a high rock. There he left him standing and thought, Just two steps more and he will fall down and kill himself and I can take the ring from him. But the faithful lion had not deserted its master. It held him fast by the clothes and drew him gradually back again. When the giant came and wanted to rob the dead man, he saw that his cunning had been in vain. Is there no way then of destroying a weak child of man like that? said he angrily to himself, and seized the king's son and led him back again to the precipice by another way. But the lion, which saw his evil design, helped its master out of danger here also. When they had got close to the edge, the giant let the blind man's hand drop and was going to leave him behind alone, but the lion pushed the giant so that he was thrown down and fell dashed to pieces on the ground. The faithful animal again drew its master back from the precipice and guided him to a tree which flowed a clear brook. The king's son sat down there, but the lion lay down and sprinkled the water in his face with its paws. Scarcely had a couple of drops wetted the sockets of his eyes than he was once more able to see something and observed a little bird flying quite close by, which wounded itself against the trunk of a tree. On this it went down to the water and bathed itself, and then it soared upwards and swept between the trees without touching them as if it had recovered its sight again. Then the king's son recognised a sign from God, and stooped down to the water, and washed and bathed his face in it. And when he arose, he had his eyes once more brighter and clearer than they had ever been. The king's son thanked God for his great mercy, and travelled with his lion onwards through the world. And it came to pass that he arrived before a castle which was enchanted. In the gateway stood a maiden of beautiful form and fine face, but she was quite black. She spoke to him and said, Ah, if you could but deliver me from the evil spell which is thrown over me. What shall I do? said the king's son. The maiden answered, You must pass three nights in the great hall of this enchanted castle, 
but you must let no fear enter your heart. When they are doing their worst to torment you, if you bear it without letting a sound escape you, I shall be free. Your life they dare not take. Then said the king's son, I have no fear. With God's help I will try it. So he went gaily into the castle, and when it grew dark he seated himself in the large hall and waited. Everything was quiet, however, till midnight, when all at once a great tumult began, and out of every hole and corner came little devils. They behaved as if they did not see him, seated themselves in the middle of the room, lighted a fire, and began to gamble. When one of them lost, he said, It is not right. Someone is here who does not belong to us. It is his fault that I am losing. Wait, you fellow, behind the stove. I am coming, said another. The screaming became still louder, so that no one could have heard it without terror. The king's son stayed sitting quite quietly, and was not afraid, but at last the devils jumped up from the ground and fell on him, and there were so many of them that he could not defend himself from them. They dragged him about on the floor, pinched him, pricked him, beat him, and tormented him but no sound escaped from him. Towards morning they disappeared, and he was so exhausted that he could scarcely move his limbs. But when day dawned, the black maiden came to him. She bore in her hand a little bottle that held the water of life, with which she washed him, and he at once felt all pain depart and new strength flow through his veins. She said, You have held out successfully for one night, but two more lie before you. Then she went away again, and as she was going, he observed that her feet had become white. The next night the devils came and began their gambling anew. They fell on the king's son and beat him much more severely than the night before, until his body was covered with wounds. But as he bore all quietly, they were forced to leave him, and when dawn appeared, the maiden came and healed him with the water of life. And when she went away, he saw with joy that she had already become white to the tips of her fingers. And now he had only one more night to go through. But it was the worst. The hobgoblins came again. Are you still there? cried they. You shall be tormented till your breath stops. They pricked him and beat him and threw him here and there and pulled him by the arms and legs as if they wanted to tear him to pieces. But he bore everything and never uttered a cry. At last the devils vanished, but he lay fainting there and did not stir, nor could he raise his eyes to look at the maiden who came in and sprinkled and bathed him with the water of life. But suddenly he was freed from all pain and felt fresh and healthy as if he had awakened from sleep. 
and when he opened his eyes, he saw the maiden standing by him, snow-white and fair as day. Rise, said she, and swing your sword three times over the stairs, and then all will be delivered. And when he had done that, the whole castle was released from enchantment, and the maiden was a rich king's daughter. The servants came and said that the table was already set in the great hall, and dinner served up. Then they sat down and ate and drank together, and in the evening the wedding was solemnised with great rejoicings. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 122. Donkey Cabbages. There was once a young hunter who went into the forest to lie in wait. He had a fresh and joyous heart, and as he was going there, whistling upon a leaf, an ugly old crone came up who spoke to him and said, "'Good day, dear hunter.' Truly you are merry and contented, but I am suffering from hunger and thirst. Do give me an alms. The hunter had compassion on the poor old creature, felt in his pocket, and gave her what he could afford. He was then about to go further, but the old woman stopped him and said, Listen, dear hunter, to what I tell you. I will make you a present in return for your kindness. Go on your way now. But in a little while you will come to a tree where nine birds are sitting which I have a cloak in their claws and are plucking at it. Take your gun and shoot into the middle of them. They will let the cloak fall down to you but one of the birds will be hurt and will drop down dead. Carry away the cloak. It is a wishing cloak. When you throw it over your shoulders you only have to wish to be in a certain place and you will be there in the twinkling of an eye. Take out the heart of the dead bird and swallow it whole, and every morning early when you get up, you will find a gold piece under your pillow. The hunter thanked the wise woman, and thought to himself, Those are fine things that she has promised me, if all does but come true. And verily, when he had walked about a hundred paces, he heard in the branches above him such a screaming and twittering that he looked up and saw there a crowd of birds who were tearing a piece of cloth about with their beaks and claws and tugging and fighting as if each wanted to have it all to himself. Well, said the hunter, this is wonderful. It has really come to pass just as the old wife foretold and he took the gun from his shoulder, aimed and fired right into the middle of them, so that the feathers flew about. The birds instantly took to flight with loud outcries, but one dropped down dead, and the cloak fell at the same time. Then the hunter did as the old woman had directed him, cut open the bird, sought the heart, swallowed it down, and took the cloak home with him. Next morning, when he awoke, the promise occurred to him, and he wished to see if it also had been fulfilled. When he lifted up the pillow, the gold piece shone in his eyes, and next day he found another, and so it went on. Every time he got up, 
he gathered together a heap of gold. But at last he thought, Of what use is all my gold to me if I stay at home? I will go forth and see the world. He then took leave of his parents, buckled on his hunter's pouch and gun, and went out into the world. It came to pass that one day he travelled through a dense forest, and when he came to the end of it, in the plain before him stood a fine castle. An old woman was standing with a wonderfully beautiful maiden, looking out of one of the windows. The old woman, however, was a witch, and said to the maiden, There comes one out of the forest who has a wonderful treasure. We must filch it from him, my dear daughter. It is more suitable for us than for him. He has a bird's heart about him, by means of which a gold piece lies every morning under his pillow. She told her what she was to do to get it, and what part she had to play, and finally threatened her and said with angry eyes, And if you do not attend to what I say, it will be the worse for you. Now when the hunter came nearer, he spied the maiden, and said to himself, I have travelled about for such a long time. I will take a rest for once, and enter that beautiful castle. I have certainly money enough. Nevertheless, the real reason was that he had caught sight of the pretty girl. He entered the house, and was well received and courteously entertained. Before long, he was so much in love with the young witch, that he no longer thought of anything else, and only saw things as she saw them, and did what she desired. The old woman then said, Now we must have the bird's heart. He will never miss it. She prepared a drink, and when it was ready, poured it into a cup, and gave it to the maiden, who was to present it to the hunter. She did so, saying, Now, my dearest, drink to me. So he took the cup, and when he had swallowed the drink, he brought up the heart of the bird. The girl had to take it away secretly and swallow it herself, for the old woman would have it so. From then on he found no more gold under his pillow, but it lay instead under that of the maiden, from whence the old woman fetched it away every morning. But he was so much in love and so befooled that he thought of nothing else but of passing his time with the girl. Then the old witch said, We have the bird's heart, but we must also take the wishing cloak away from him. The girl answered, We will leave him that. He has lost his wealth. The old woman was angry and said, Such a mantle is a wonderful thing and is seldom to be found in this world. I must and will have it. She gave the girl several blows and said that if she did not obey, it should fare ill with her. So she did the old woman's bidding, placed herself at the window and looked on the distant country as if she were very sorrowful. The hunter asked, Why do you stand there so sorrowful? Ah, my beloved, was her answer, Over yonder lies the Garret Mountain, where the precious stones grow. I long for them so much, that when I think of them, I feel quite sad. But who can get them? Only the birds, they fly, and can reach them, 
but a man never. Have you nothing else to complain of, said the hunter? I will soon remove that burden from your heart. With that he drew her under his mantle, wished himself on the Gannet Mountain, and in the twinkling of an eye they were sitting on it together. Precious stones were glistening on every side so that it was a joy to see them, and together they gathered the finest and costliest of them. Now the old woman had, through her sorceries, contrived that the eyes of the hunter should become heavy. He said to the maiden, We will sit down and rest a while. I am so tired that I can no longer stand on my feet. Then they sat down, and he laid his head in her lap and fell asleep. When he was asleep, she unfastened the mantle from his shoulders and wrapped herself in it, picked up the gannets and stones and wished herself back at home with them. But when the hunter had had his sleep out and awoke and perceived that his sweetheart had betrayed him and left him alone on the wild mountain, he said, Oh, what treachery there is in the world! and sat down there in care and sorrow, not knowing what to do. But the mountain belonged to some wild and monstrous giants who dwelt on it and lived their lives there. And he had not sat long before he saw three of them coming towards him, so he lay down as if he was sunk in a deep sleep. Then the giants came up, and the first kicked him with his foot and said, what sort of an earthworm is lying curled up here? The second said, Step upon him and kill him. But the third said, That would indeed be worth your while. Just let him live. He cannot remain here. And when he climbs higher towards the summit of the mountain, the clouds will lay hold of him and bear him away. So saying, they passed by. But the hunter had paid heed to their words, and as soon as they were gone he rose and climbed up to the summit of the mountain, and when he had sat there a while, a cloud floated towards him, caught him up, carried him away, and travelled about for a long time in the heavens. Then it sank lower, and let itself down on a great cabbage garden, girt round by walls so that he came softly to the ground on cabbages and vegetables. Then the hunter looked about him and said, If I had but something to eat, I am so hungry and my hunger will increase in course of time. But I see here neither apples nor pears nor any other sort of fruit, everywhere nothing but cabbages. But at last he thought, at a pinch I can eat some of the leaves. They do not taste particularly good, but they will refresh me. With that he picked himself out a fine head of cabbage and ate it, but scarcely had he swallowed a couple of mouthfuls than he felt very strange and quite different. Four legs grew on him, a large head and two thick ears, and he saw with horror that he was changed into an ass. Still, as his hunger increased every minute, and as the juicy leaves were suitable to his present nature, he went on eating with great zest. 
At last he arrived at a different kind of cabbage, but as soon as he had swallowed it, he again felt a change and reassumed his former human shape. Then the hunter lay down and slept off his fatigue. When he awoke next morning, he broke off one head of the bad cabbages and another off the good ones and thought to himself, This shall help me to get my own belongings again and punish treachery. Then he took the cabbages with him, climbed over the wall and went forth to seek for the castle of his sweetheart. After wandering about for a couple of days, he was lucky enough to find it again. He dyed his face brown so that his own mother would not have known him and begged for shelter. I am so tired, said he, that I can go no further. The witch asked, Who are you, countryman, and what is your business? I am a king's messenger, and was sent out to seek the most delicious salad which grows beneath the sun. I have even been so fortunate as to find it, and am carrying it about with me. But the heat of the sun is so intense that the delicate cabbage threatens to wither, and I do not know if I can carry it any further. When the old woman heard of the exquisite salad, she was greedy and said, Dear countrymen, let me just taste this wonderful salad. Why not? answered he. I have brought two heads with me, and will give you one of them. And he opened his pouch and handed her the bad cabbage. The witch suspected nothing amiss, and her mouth watered so for this new dish that she herself went into the kitchen and dressed it. When it was prepared, she could not wait until it was set on the table, but took a couple of leaves at once and put them in her mouth. But hardly had she swallowed them than she was deprived of her human shape, and she ran out into the courtyard in the form of an ass. Presently the servant entered the kitchen, saw the salad standing there ready prepared, and was about to carry it up, but on the way, according to habit, she was seized by the desire to taste, and she ate a couple of leaves. Instantly the magic power showed itself, and she likewise became an ass and ran out to the old woman, and the dish of salad fell to the ground. Meantime the messenger sat beside the beautiful girl, and as no one came with the salad, and she also was longing for it, she said, I don't know what has become of the salad. The hunter thought the salad must have already taken effect, and said, I will go to the kitchen and inquire about it. As he went down, he saw the two asses running about in the courtyard. The salad, however, was lying on the ground. All right, said he, the two have taken their portion, and he picked up the other leaves, laid them on the dish, and carried them to the maiden. I bring you the delicate food myself, said he, in order that you may not have to wait longer. Then she ate of it, and was like the others, immediately deprived of her human form, and ran into the courtyard in the shape of an ass. After the hunter had washed his face so that the transformed ones could recognise him, he went down into the courtyard and said, Now you shall receive the wages of your treachery, and bound them together 
all three with one rope, and drove them along until he came to a mill. He knocked at the window. The miller put out his head and asked what he wanted. I have three unmanageable beasts, answered he, which I don't want to keep any longer. Will you take them in and give them food and stable room and manage them as I tell you, and then I will pay you what you ask? The miller said, Why not? But how am I to manage them? The hunter then said that he was to give three beatings and one meal daily to the old donkey, and that was the witch, one beating and three meals to the younger one, which was the servant girl, and to the youngest, which was the maiden, no beatings and three meals, for he could not bring himself to have the maiden beaten. After that, he went back into the castle and found inside everything he needed. After a couple of days, the miller came and said he must inform him that the old ass, which had received three beatings and only one meal daily, was dead. The two others, he continued, are certainly not dead and are fed three times daily, but they are so sad that they cannot last much longer. The hunter was moved to pity, put away his anger, and told the miller to drive them back again to him. And when they came, he gave them some of the good salad, so that they became human again. The beautiful girl fell on her knees before him and said, Ah, my beloved, forgive me for the evil I have done you. My mother drove me to it. It was done against my will. For I love you dearly. Your wishing cloak hangs in a cupboard. And as for the bird's heart, I will take a vomiting potion. But he thought otherwise and said, Keep it. It is all the same, for I will take you for my true wife. So the wedding was celebrated, and they lived happily together until their death. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 123, The Old Woman in the Wood. A poor servant girl was once travelling with the family with which she was in service through a great forest, and when they were in the middle of it, robbers came out of the thicket and murdered all they found. All perished together except the girl who had jumped out of the carriage in a fright and hidden herself behind a tree. When the robbers had gone away with their booty, she came out and beheld the great disaster. Then she began to weep bitterly and said, What can a poor girl like me do now? I do not know how to get out of the forest. No human being lives in it, so I must certainly starve. She walked about and looked for a road, but could find none. When it was evening, she seated herself under a tree, gave herself into God's keeping, and resolved to sit waiting there and not go away, no matter what might happen. When, however, 
She had sat there for a while. A white dove came flying to her with a little golden key in its mouth. It put the little key in her hand and said, Do you see that great tree? Therein is a little lock. It opens with the tiny key. And there you will find food enough and suffer no more hunger. Then she went to the tree and opened it and found milk in a little dish and white bread to break into it so that she could eat her fill. When she was satisfied, she said, It is now the time when the hens at home go to roost. I am so tired I could go to bed too. Then the dove flew to her again and brought another golden key to its bill and said, Open that tree there and you will find a bed. So she opened it and found a beautiful white bed and she prayed God to protect her during the night and lay down and slept. In the morning the dove came for the third time and again brought a little key and said, Open that tree there and you will find clothes. And when she opened it, she found garments beset with gold and with jewels more splendid than those of any king's daughter. So she lived there for some time, and the dove came every day and provided her with all she needed, and it was a quite good life. Once, however, the dove came and said, Will you do something for my sake? With all my heart, said the girl. Then said the little dove, I will guide you to a small house. Enter it, and inside it an old woman will be sitting by the fire, and will say, Good day. But on your life give her no answer. Let her do what she will, but pass by her on the right side, further on, there is a door, which you will open, and you will enter into a room where a quantity of rings of all kinds are lying amongst which are some magnificent ones with shining stones. Leave them, however, where they are, and seek out a plain one, which must likewise be amongst them, and bring it here to me as quickly as you can. The girl went into the little house and came to the door. There sat an old woman who stared when she saw her and said, Good day, my child. The girl gave her no answer and opened the door. Where away? cried the old woman and seized her by the gown and wanted to hold her fast, saying, That is my house. No one can go in there if I choose not to allow it. But the girl was silent, got away from her and went straight into the room. Now there lay on the table an enormous quantity of rings, which gleamed and glittered before her eyes. She turned them over and looked for the plain one, but could not find it. While she was seeking, she saw the old woman and how she was stealing away and wanting to get off with a bird cage, which she had in her hand. So she went after her and took the cage out of her hand, and when she raised it up and looked into it, a bird was inside which had the plain ring in its bill. Then she took the ring and ran quite joyously home with it, and thought the little white dove would come and get the ring, but it did not. 
Then she leaned against a tree, and determined to wait for the dove, and as she thus stood, it seemed just as if the tree was soft and pliant, and was letting its branches down, and suddenly the branches twined around her, and were two arms, and when she looked round the tree was a handsome man who embraced and kissed her heartily, and said, You have delivered me from the power of the old woman, who is a wicked witch. She had changed me into a tree, and every day for two hours I was a white dove, and so long as she possessed the ring, I could not regain my human form. Then his servants and his horses, who had likewise been changed into trees, were freed from the enchantment also, and stood beside him. And he led them forth to his kingdom, for he was a king's son. And they married and lived happily. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 124. The Three Brothers. There was once a man who had three sons, and nothing else in the world but the house in which he lived. Now each of his sons wished to have the house after his father's death, but the father loved them all alike, and did not know what to do. He did not wish to sell the house, because it had belonged to his forefathers, else he might have divided the money amongst them. At last a plan came into his head, and he said to his sons, Go into the world, and try each of you to learn a trade, and when you all come back, he who makes the best masterpiece shall have the house. The sons were well content with this, and the eldest determined to be a blacksmith, the second a barber, and the third a fencing master. They fixed a time when they should all come home again, and then each went his way. It chanced that they all found skilful masters who taught them their trades well. The blacksmith had to shoe the king's horses, and he thought to himself, the house is mine without doubt. The barber only shaved great people, and he too already looked upon the house as his own. The fencing master got many a blow, but he only bit his lip and let nothing vex him. For, said he to himself, if you are afraid of a blow, you'll never win the house. When the appointed time had gone by, the three brothers came back home to their father, but they did not know how to find the best opportunity for showing their skill. So they sat down and consulted together. As they were sitting thus, all at once a hare came running across the field. Ah, ha, just in time, said the barber. So he took his basin and soap, and lathered away until the hair came up. Then he soaped and shaved off the hair's whiskers, while he was running at the top of his speed, and did not even cut his skin or injure a hair on his body. Well done, said the old man. Your brothers will have to exert themselves wonderfully, or the house will be yours. Soon after, 
Up came a nobleman in his coach, dashing along at full speed. Now you shall see what I can do, father, said the blacksmith. So away he ran after the coach, took all four shoes off the feet of one of the horses while he was galloping, and put on him four new shoes without stopping him. You're a fine fellow, and as clever as your brother, said his father. I do not know to which I ought to give the house. Then the third son said, Father, let me have my turn, if you please. And as it was beginning to rain, he drew his sword and flourished it backwards and forwards above his head, so fast that not a drop fell upon him. It rained still harder and harder, till at last it came down in torrents, but he only flourished his sword faster and faster, and remained as dry as if he were sitting in a house. When his father saw this, he was amazed, and said, This is the masterpiece. The house is yours. His brothers were satisfied with this, as was agreed beforehand, and, as they loved one another very much, they all three stayed together in the house, followed their trades, and, as they had learned them so well and were so clever, they earned a great deal of money. Thus they lived together happily until they grew old, and at last, when one of them fell sick and died, the two others grieved so sorely about it that they also fell ill, and soon after died. And because they had been so clever and had loved one another so much, they were all laid in the same grave. Grimm's Household Tales Translated by Margaret Hunt Read by Paul Martin This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 125 The Devil and His Grandmother there was a great war, and the king had many soldiers, but gave them small pay, so small that they could not live upon it, so three of them agreed among themselves to desert. One of them said to the others, If we are caught, we shall be hanged on the gallows. How shall we manage it? Another said, Look at that great cornfield. If we were to hide ourselves there, no one could find us. The troops are not allowed to enter it, and tomorrow they are to march away. They crept into the corn, only the troops did not march away, but remained lying all round about it. They stayed in the corn for two days and two nights, and were so hungry that they all but died. But if they had come out, their death would have been certain. Then said they, What is the use of our deserting if we have to perish miserably here? But now a fiery dragon came flying through the air, and it came down to them, and asked why they had concealed themselves there. They answered, We are free soldiers who have deserted because the pay was so bad, and now we shall have to die of hunger if we stay here, or to dangle on the gallows if we go out. If you will serve me for seven years, said the dragon, I will convey you through the army, so that no one shall seize you. We have no choice and are compelled to accept, they replied. Then the dragon caught hold of them with his claws and carried them away through the air over the army and put them down again on the earth, far from it. 
but the dragon was no other than the devil. He gave them a small whip and said, Whip with it and crack it, and then as much gold will spring up round about as you can wish for. Then you can live like great lords, keep horses and drive your carriages. But when the seven years have come to an end, you are my property. Then he put before them a book which they were all three forced to sign. I will, however, then set you a riddle, said he, and if you can guess that, you shall be free and released from my power. Then the dragon flew away from them, and they went away with their whip, had gold in plenty, ordered themselves rich apparel, and travelled about the world. Wherever they were, they lived in pleasure and magnificence, rode on horseback, drove in carriages, ate and drank, but did nothing wicked. The time slipped quickly away, and when the seven years were coming to an end, two of them were terribly anxious and alarmed. But the third took the affair easily and said, Brothers, fear nothing, my head is sharp enough, I shall guess the riddle. They went out into the open country and sat down, and the two made sorrowful faces. Then an aged woman came up to them, who inquired why they were so sad. Alas, said they, how can that concern you? After all, you cannot help us. Who knows, said she, confide your trouble to me. So they told her, that they had been the devil's servants for nearly seven years, and that he had provided them with gold as plentifully as if it had been blackberries, but that they had sold themselves to him, and were forfeited to him, if at the end of the seven years they could not guess a riddle. The old woman said, If you are to be saved, one of you must go into the forest there, he will come to a fallen rock, which looks like a little house. He must enter that, and then he will obtain help. The two melancholy ones thought to themselves, That will still not save us, and stayed where they were. But the third, the merry one, got up and walked on in the forest until he found the rock house. In that little house, however, a very aged woman was sitting, who was the devil's grandmother, and asked the soldier where he came from and what he wanted there. He told her everything that had happened, and as he pleased her will, she had pity on him and said she would help him. She lifted up a great stone which lay above a cellar and said, Conceal yourself there. You can hear everything that is said here, only sit still and do not stir. When the dragon comes, I will question him about the riddle. He tells everything to me, so listen carefully to his answer. At twelve o'clock at night, the dragon came flying here and asked for his dinner. The grandmother laid the table and served up food and drink, so that he was pleased, and they ate and drank together. In the course of conversation, she asked him what kind of day he had had, and how many souls he had got. Nothing went very well today, he answered, 
but I've laid hold of three soldiers. I have them safe. Indeed, three soldiers, that's something to like. But they may escape you yet, the devil said mockingly. They are mine. I will set them a riddle, which they will never in this world be able to guess. What riddle is that? she inquired. I will tell you. In the great North Sea lies a dead dogfish that shall be your roast meat, and the rib of a whale shall be your silver spoon, and a hollow old horse's hoof shall be your wine glass. When the devil had gone to bed, the old grandmother raised up the stone and let out the soldier. Have you paid particular attention to everything? Yes, said he, I know enough and will contrive to save myself. Then he had to go back another way, through the window secretly and with all speed to his companions. He told them how the devil had been overreached by the old grandmother and how he had learned the answer to the riddle from him. Then they were all joyous and of good cheer and took the whip and whipped so much gold for themselves that it ran all over the ground. When the seven years had fully gone by, the devil came with the book, showed the signatures and said, I will take you with me to hell. There you shall have a meal. If you can guess what kind of roast meat you will have to eat, you shall be free and released from your bargain, and may keep the whip as well. Then the first soldier began and said, In the great North Sea lies a dead dogfish, that no doubt is the roast meat. The devil was angry and began to mutter, Hmm, 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 and asked the second, But what will your spoon be? The rib of a whale, that is to be our silver spoon. The devil made a wry face, again growled, Hmm, 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 and said to the third, And do you also know what your wine glass is to be? An old horse's hoof is to be our wine glass. Then the devil flew away with a loud cry, and had no more power over them. But the free kept the whip, whipped as much money for themselves with it as they wanted, and lived happily to their end. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 126. Ferdinand the Faithful Once on a time lived a man and a woman who so long as they were rich, had no children, but when they were poor, they had a little boy. They could, however, find no godfather for him, so the man said he would just go to another place to see if he could get one there. As he went, a poor man met him, who asked him where he was going. He said he was going to see if he could get a godfather, that he was poor, so no one would stand as godfather for him. Oh, said the poor man, you are poor, and I am poor. I will be godfather for you. But I am so ill off, I can give the child nothing. 
go home and tell the nurse that she is to come to the church with the child. When they all got to the church together, the beggar was already there, and he gave the child the name Ferdinand the Faithful. When he was going out of the church, the beggar said, Now go home, I can give you nothing, and you likewise ought to give me nothing. But he gave a key to the nurse and told her when she got home she was to give it to the father, who was to take care of it until the child was fourteen years old. And then he was to go on the heath where there was a castle which the key would fit and that all which was inside should belong to him. Now when the child was seven years old and had grown very big, he once went to play with some other boys, and each of them boasted that he had got more from his godfather than the other. But the child could say nothing and was vexed, and went home and said to his father, Did I get nothing at all then from my godfather? Oh yes, said the father, you had a key. If there is a castle standing on the heath, just go to it and open it. Then the boy went there, but no castle was to be seen or heard of. After seven years more, when he was fourteen years old, he again went there, and there stood the castle. When he had opened it, there was nothing within but a horse, a white one. Then the boy was so full of joy, because he had a horse that he mounted on it and galloped back to his father. Now I have a white horse, and I will travel, said he. So he set out, and as he was on his way, a pen was lying on the road. At first he thought he would pick it up, but then again he thought to himself, you should leave it lying there. You will easily find a pen where you are going, if you have need of one. As he was thus riding away, a voice called after him, Ferdinand the Faithful, take it with you. He looked around, but saw no one. Then he went back again and picked it up. When he had ridden a little way farther, he passed by a lake, and a fish was lying on the bank, gasping and panting for breath. So he said, Wait, my dear fish, I will help you get into the water. And he took hold of it by the tail and threw it into the lake. Then the fish put its head out of the water and said, As you have helped me out of the mud, I will give you a flute. When you are in any need, play on it, and then I will help you. And if ever you let anything fall in the water, just play, and I will reach it out to you. Then he rode away, and there came to him a man who asked him where he was going. Oh, to the next place. Then he asked what his name was. Ferdinand the Faithful. So, then we have got almost the same name. I am called Ferdinand the Unfaithful. And they both set out to the inn in the nearest place. Now it was unfortunate that Ferdinand the Unfaithful 
knew everything that the other had ever thought and everything he was about to do. He knew it by means of all kinds of wicked arts. There was, however, in the inn an honest girl who had a bright face and behaved very prettily. She fell in love with Ferdinand the Faithful because he was a handsome man and she asked him where he was going. Oh, I am just travelling round about, said he. Then she said he ought to stay there, for the king of that country wanted an attendant or an outrider, and he ought to enter his service. He answered he could not very well go to anyone like that and offer himself. Then said the maiden, Oh, but I will soon do that for you. And so she went straight to the king and told him that she knew of an excellent servant for him. He was well pleased with that and had Ferdinand the Faithful brought to him and wanted to make him his servant. He, however, liked better to be an outrider. For where his horse was, there he also wanted to be. So the king made him an outrider. When Ferdinand the Unfaithful learned that, he said to the girl, What? Do you help him and not me? Oh, said the girl, I will help you too, she thought. I must keep friends with that man, for he is not to be trusted. She went to the king and offered him as a servant, and the king was willing. Now when the king met his lords in the morning, he always lamented and said, Oh, if I had but my love with me. Ferdinand the Unfaithful was, however, always hostile to Ferdinand the Faithful. So once, when the king was complaining thus, he said, You have the outrider. Send him away to get her. And if he does not do it, his head must be struck off. Then the king sent Ferdinand the Faithful and told him that there was in this place or in that place a girl he loved and that he was to bring her to him and if he did not do it, he should die. Ferdinand the Faithful went into the stable to his white horse and complained and lamented, Oh, what an unhappy man I am! Then someone behind him cried, Ferdinand the Faithful, why do you weep? He looked round but saw no one and went on lamenting, Oh, my dear little white horse, now must I leave you, now must I die. Then someone cried once more, Ferdinand the Faithful, why do you weep? Then for the first time he was aware that it was his little white horse who was putting that question. Do you speak, my little white horse? Can you do that? And again he said, I am to go to this place and to that, and am to bring the bride. Can you tell me how I am to set about it? Then answered the little white horse, Go to the king and say, If he will give you what you must have, you will get her for him. If he will give you a ship full of meat and a ship full of bread, it will succeed. 
great giants dwell on the lake, and if you take no meat with you for them, they will tear you to pieces, and there are the large birds which would peck the eyes out of your head if you had no bread for them. Then the king made all the butchers in the land kill, and all the bakers bake, that the ships might be filled. When they were full, the little white horse said to Ferdinand the Faithful, Now mount me, and go with me into the ship, and then when the giants come, say, Peace, peace, my dear little giants, I have had thought of you something I have brought for you. And when the birds come, you shall again say, Peace, peace, my dear little birds, I have had thought of you something I have brought for you. Then they will do nothing to you, and when you come to the castle, the giants will help you. Then go up to the castle, and take a couple of giants with you. There the princess lies sleeping. You must, however, not awaken her, but the giants must lift her up and carry her in her bed to the ship. And now everything took place as the little white horse had said, and Ferdinand the Faithful gave the giants and the birds what he had brought with him for them. And that made the giants willing, and they carried the princess in her bed to the king. And when she came to the king, she said she could not live. She must have her writings. They had been left in her castle. Then by the instigation of Ferdinand the Unfaithful, Ferdinand the Faithful was called, and the king told him he must fetch the writings from the castle, or he should die. Then he went once more into the stable and bemoaned himself and said, Oh, my dear little white horse, now I am to go away again. How am I to do it? Then the little white horse said he was just to load the ships full again. So it happened again, as it had happened before, and the giants and the birds were satisfied and made gentle by the meat. When they came to the castle, the white horse told Ferdinand the Faithful that he must go in, and that on the table in the princess's bedroom lay the writings, and Ferdinand the Faithful went in and fetched them. When they went on the lake, he let his pen fall into the water. Then said the white horse, Now I cannot help you at all. But he remembered his flute and began to play on it, and the fish came with the pen in its mouth and gave it to him. So he took the writings to the castle where the wedding was celebrated. The queen, however, did not love the king because he had no nose, but she would have liked to love Ferdinand the Faithful. Once, therefore, when all the lords of the court were together, the queen said she could do fates of magic, that she could cut off anyone's head and put it on again, and that one of them ought just to try it. But none of them would be the first, so Ferdinand the Faithful, again at the instigation of Ferdinand the Unfaithful, 
undertook it, and she hewed off his head, and put it on again for him, and it healed together directly, so that it looked as if he had a red thread round his throat. Then the king said to her, My child, where have you learned that? Yes, she said, I understand the art. Shall I just try it on you also? Oh, yes, said he. But she cut off his head and did not put it on again, but pretended that she could not get it on, and that it would not keep fixed. Then the king was buried, but she married Ferdinand the Faithful. He, however, always rode on his white horse, and once, when he was seated on it, it told him that he was to go on to the heath which he knew, and gallop three times round it, and when he had done that, the white horse stood up on its hind legs, and was changed into a king's son. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 127. The Iron Stove In the days when wishing was still of some use, a king's son was bewitched by an old witch and shut up in an iron stove in a forest. There he passed many years, and no one could deliver him. Then a king's daughter came into the forest, who had lost herself, and could not find her father's kingdom again. After she had wandered about for nine days, she at length came to the iron stove. Then a voice came forth from it, and asked her, "'From where do you come, and where are you going?' She answered, I have lost my father's kingdom and cannot get home again. Then a voice inside the iron stove said, I will help you to get home again, and that indeed most swiftly, if you will promise to do what I desire of you. I am the son of a far greater king than your father, and I will marry you. Then was she afraid and thought, Good heavens! What can I do with an iron stove? But as she much wished to get home to her father, she promised to do as he desired. But he said, You shall return here and bring a knife with you and scrape a hole in the iron. Then he gave her a companion who walked near her but did not speak. But in two hours he took her home. There was great joy in the castle when the king's daughter came home, and the old king fell on her neck and kissed her. She, however, was sorely troubled and said, Dear father, what I have suffered, I should never have got home again from the great wild forest if I had not come to an iron stove, but I have been forced to give my word that I will go back to it, set it free, and marry it. Then the old king was so terrified that he all but fainted, for he had but this one daughter. They therefore resolved they would send in her place the miller's daughter, who was very beautiful. They took her there, gave her a knife, and said she was to scrape at the iron stove. 
so she scraped it for 24 hours, but could not bring off the least morsel of it. When day dawned, a voice in the stove said, It seems to me it is day outside. Then she answered, It seems so to me too. I fancy I hear the noise of my father's mill. So you are a miller's daughter. Then go your way at once, and let the king's daughter come here. Then she went away at once, and told the old king that the man outside there would have none of her. He wanted the king's daughter. They, however, still had a swineherd's daughter, who was even prettier than the miller's daughter, and they determined to give her a piece of gold to go to the iron stove instead of the king's daughter. So she was taken there, and she also had to scrape for twenty-four hours. She, however, made nothing of it. When the day broke, a voice inside the stove cried, It seems to me it is day outside. Then answered she, So it seems to me also. I fancy I hear my father's horn blowing. Then you are a swineherd's daughter. Go away at once, and tell the king's daughter to come, and tell her all must be done as promised, and if she does not come, everything in the kingdom shall be ruined and destroyed, and not one stone be left standing on another. When the king's daughter heard that, she began to weep, but now there was nothing for it but to keep her promise. So she took leave of her father, put a knife in her pocket, and went forth to the iron stove in the forest. When she got there, she began to scrape, and the iron gave way, and when two hours were over, she had already scraped a small hole. Then she peeped in and saw a youth so handsome and so brilliant with gold and with precious jewels that her very soul was delighted. Now, therefore, she went on scraping and made the hole so large that he was able to get out. Then said he, You are mine and I am yours. You are my bride and have released me. He wanted to take her away with him to his kingdom, but she entreated him to let her go once again to her father, and the king's son allowed her to do so, but she was not to say more to her father than three words, and then she was to come back again. So she went home, but she spoke more than three words, and instantly the iron stove disappeared and was taken far away over glass mountains and piercing swords. But the king's son was set free and no longer shut up in it. After this, she bade goodbye to her father, took some money with her, but not much, and went back to the great forest and looked for the iron stove, but it was nowhere to be found. For nine days she sought it, and then her hunger grew so great that she did not know what to do, for she could no longer live. When it was evening, she seated herself in a small tree and made up her mind to spend the night there, as she was afraid of wild beasts. When midnight drew near, she saw in the distance a small light, and thought, Ah, there I should be saved. She got down from the tree, and went towards the light, but on the way she prayed. 
Then she came to a little old house, and much grass had grown all about it, and a small heap of wood lay in front of it. She thought, Ah, where have I come? and peeped in through the window, but she saw nothing inside but toads, big and little, except a table, well covered with wine and roast meat, and the plates and glasses were of silver. Then she took courage and knocked at the door. The fat toad cried, Little green waiting maid, waiting maid with the limping leg, little dog of the limping leg, hop there and over there, and quickly see who is outside. And a small toad came walking by and opened the door to her. When she entered, they all bade her welcome, and she was forced to sit down. They asked, Where have you come from, and where are you going? Then she related all that had befallen her, and how, because she had transgressed the order, which had been given her not to say more than three words, the stove, and the king's son also had disappeared, and now she was about to seek him over hill and dale until she found him. Then the old fat one said, Little green waiting maid, waiting maid with the limping leg, little dog of the limping leg, hop here and over there, and bring me the great box. Then the little one went and brought the box. After this they gave her meat and drink, and took her to a well-made bed, which felt like silk and velvet, and she laid herself in it in God's name and slept. When morning came she arose, and the old toad gave her three needles out of the great box which she was to take with her. They would be needed by her, for she had to cross a high glass mountain and go over three piercing swords and a great lake. If she did all this, she would get her lover back again. Then she gave her three things which she was to take the greatest care of, namely three large needles, a plough wheel, and three nuts. With these she travelled onwards, and when she came to the glass mountain which was so slippery, she stuck the three needles first behind her feet and then before them, and so got over it, and when she was over it, she hid them in a place which she marked carefully. After this she came to the three piercing swords, and then she seated herself on her plough-wheel and rolled over them. At last she arrived in front of a great lake, and when she had crossed it she came to a large and beautiful castle. She went and asked for a place. She was a poor girl, she said, and would like to be hired. She knew, however, that the king's son, whom she had released from the iron stove in the great forest, was in the castle. Then she was taken as a kitchen maid at low wages. But already the king's son had another maiden by his side, whom he wanted to marry, for he thought that she had long been dead. In the evening, when she had washed up and was done, she felt in her pocket and found the free nuts which the old toad had given her. She cracked one with her teeth and was going to eat the kernel, when, lo and behold, there was a stately royal garment in it. 
And when the bride heard of this, she came and asked for the dress, and wanted to buy it, and said, It is not a dress for a servant girl. But she said no, she would not sell it, but if the bride would grant her one thing, she should have it, and that was, let her sleep one night in her bridegroom's chamber. The bride gave her permission because the dress was so pretty, and she had never had one like it. When it was evening, she said to her bridegroom, That silly girl will sleep in your room. If you are willing, so am I, said he. She had, however, gave him a glass of wine, in which she had poured a sleeping potion. So the bridegroom and the kitchen maid went to sleep in the room, and he slept so soundly that she could not wake him. She wept the whole night and cried, I set you free when you were in an iron stove in the wild forest. I sought you and walked over a glass mountain and three sharp swords and a great lake before I found you. And yet you will not hear me. The servants sat by the chamber door and heard how she thus wept the whole night through. And in the morning they told it to their lord. And the next evening... When she had washed up, she opened the second nut, and a far more beautiful dress was within it, and when the bride beheld it, she wished to buy that also. But the girl would not take money, and begged that she might once again sleep in the bridegroom's chamber. The bride, however, gave him a sleeping potion, and he slept so soundly that he could hear nothing. But the kitchen maid wept the whole night long and cried, I set you free when you were in an iron stove in the wild forest. I sought you and walked over a glass mountain and over three sharp swords and a great lake before I found you, and yet you will not hear me. The servants sat by the chamber door and heard her weeping the whole night through and in the morning informed their lord of it. And on the third evening, when she had washed up, she opened the third nut, and within it was a still more beautiful dress, which was stiff with pure gold. When the bride saw that she wanted to have it, but the maiden only gave it up on condition that she might, for the third time, sleep in the bridegroom's apartment. The king's son was, however, on his guard, and threw the sleeping potion away. Now, therefore, when she began to weep and to cry, Dearest love, I set you free when you were in the iron stove in the terrible wild forest. The king's son leapt up and said, You are the true one, you are mine, and I am yours. Therefore, while it was still night, he got into a carriage with her, and they took away the false bride's clothes, so that she could not get up. When they came to the great lake, they sailed across it, and when they reached the three sharp cutting swords, they seated themselves on the plough wheel, and when they got to the glass mountain, they thrust the three needles in it. And so at length they got to the little old house. 
But when they went inside that, it was a great castle, and the toads were all disenchanted, and were king's children, and full of happiness. Then the wedding was celebrated, and the king's son and the princess remained in the castle, which was much larger than the castles of their fathers. As, however, the old king grieved at being left alone, they fetched him away, and brought him to live with them. And they had two kingdoms, and lived in happy wedlock. A mouse did run. This story is done. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 128. The Lazy Spinner. In a certain village there once lived a man and his wife, and the wife was so idle that she would never work at anything. Whatever her husband gave her to spin, she did not get done. And what she did spin, she did not wind, but let it all remain entangled in a heap. If the man scolded her, she was always ready with her tongue, and said, Well, how should I wind it when I have no reel? Just you go into the forest and get me one. If that is all, said the man, then I will go into the forest and get some wood for making reels. Then the woman was afraid that if he had the wood, he would make her a reel of it, and she would have to wind her yarn off and then begin to spin again. She fought a little, and then a lucky idea occurred to her, and she secretly followed the man into the forest, and when he had climbed into a tree to choose and cut the wood, she crept into the thicket below, where he could not see her, and cried, He who cuts wood for reels shall die, and he who winds shall perish. The man listened, laid down his axe for a moment, and began to consider what that could mean. Hollow, he said at last. What can that have been? My ears must have been singing. I won't alarm myself for nothing. So he again seized the axe, and began to hew. Then again there came a cry from below. He who cuts wood for reels shall die, and he who winds shall perish. He stopped and felt afraid and alarmed, and pondered over the circumstance. But when a few moments had passed, he took heart again and a third time he stretched out his hand for the axe and began to cut. But someone called out a third time and said loudly, He who cuts wood for reels shall die, and he who winds shall perish. That was enough for him, and all inclination had departed from him, so he hastily descended the tree and set out on his way home. The woman ran as fast as she could, by byways, so as to get home first. So when he entered the parlour, she put on an innocent look, as if nothing had happened, and said, Well, have you brought a nice piece of wood for reels? No, said he. I see very well that winding won't do, and told her what had happened to him in the forest, and from that time forth left her in peace about it. Nevertheless, after some time, the man again began to complain of the disorder in the house. Wife, he said, it is really a shame that the spun yarn should lie there all entangled. I'll tell you what, said she, 
As we still don't come by any reel, go up into the loft and I will stand down below and will throw the yarn up to you and you will throw it down to me and so we shall get a skein after all. Yes, that will do, said the man. So they did that and when it was done he said The yarn is in skeins, now it must be boiled. The woman was again distressed. She certainly said, yes, we will boil it next morning early, but she was secretly contriving another trick. Early in the morning, she got up, lighted a fire and put the kettle on, only instead of the yarn, she put in a lump of tow and let it boil. After that, she went to the man, who was still lying in bed, and said to him, I must just go out, and you must get up and look after the yarn which is in the kettle on the fire. But you must be at hand at once. Mind that, for if the cock should happen to crow, and you are not attending to the yarn, it will become tow. The man was willing, and took good care not to loiter. He got up as quickly as he could and went into the kitchen, but when he reached the kettle and peeped in, he saw to his horror nothing but a lump of tow. Then the poor man was as still as a mouse, thinking he had neglected it, and was to blame, and in future said no more about yarn and spinning, but you yourself must own she was an odious woman." Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 129. The Four Skilful Brothers. There was once a poor man who had four sons, and when they were grown up, he said to them, My dear children, you must now go out into the world, for I have nothing to give you. So set out, and go to some distance, and learn a trade, and see how you can make your way. So the four brothers took their sticks, bade their father farewell, and went through the town gate together. When they travelled about for some time, they came to a crossroad, which branched off in four different directions. Then said the eldest, Here we must separate, but on this day, in four years... We will meet each other again at this spot, and in the meantime we will seek our fortunes. Then each of them went his way, and the eldest met a man who asked him where he was going, and what he was intending to do. I want to learn a trade, he replied. Then the other said, Come with me and be a thief. No, he answered. That is no longer regarded as a reputable trade, and the end of it, that one has to swing on the gallows. Oh, said the man, you need not be afraid of the gallows. I will only teach you to get such things as no other man could ever lay hold of, and no one will ever detect you. So he allowed himself to be talked into it, and while with the man became an accomplished thief, and so dexterous that nothing was safe from him, if he once desired to have it. 
The second brother met a man who put the same question to him: what he wanted to learn in the world. I don't know yet," he replied. Then come with me and be an astronomer. There is nothing better than that, for nothing is hid from you. He liked the idea and became such a skilful astronomer that when he had learned everything and was about to travel onwards, his master gave him a telescope and said to him, "With that you can see whatever takes place." Either on earth or in heaven, and nothing can remain concealed from you. A hunter took the third brother into training and gave him such excellent instruction in everything which related to huntership that he became an experienced hunter. When he went away, his master gave him a gun and said, "It will never fail you. Whatever you aim at." You are certain to hit. The youngest brother also met a man who spoke to him and inquired what his intentions were. Would you not like to be a tailor? Said he. Not that I know of. Said the youth, sitting doubled up from morning till night, driving the needle and the goose backwards and forwards, is not to my taste. Oh, but you are speaking in ignorance," answered the man. "With me, you would learn a very special kind of tailoring, which is respectable and proper, and for the most part, very honourable. So he let himself be persuaded and went with the man and learned his art from the very beginning. When they parted, the man gave the youth a needle and said, 'With this, you can sew together whatever is given you.'" Whether it is as soft as an egg or as hard as steel, and it will all become one piece of stuff, so that no seam will be visible. When the appointed four years were over, the four brothers arrived at the same time at the crossroads, embraced and kissed each other, and returned home to their father. So now said he, quite delighted. The wind has blown you back again to me. They told him of all that had happened to them, and that each had learned his own trade. Now they were sitting just in front of the house under a large tree, and the father said, "I will put you all to the test and see what you can do." Then he looked up and said to his second son, "Between two branches up at the top of this tree, there is a." Chaffinch's nest. Tell me how many eggs there are in it. The astronomer took his glass, looked up, and said, "There are five." Then the father said to the eldest, "Fetch the eggs down without disturbing the bird which is sitting hatching them." The skilful thief climbed up and took the five eggs from beneath the bird, which never observed what he was doing. And remained quietly sitting where she was, and brought them down to his father. The father took them and put one of them on each corner of the table, and the fifth in the middle, and said to the hunter, "With one shot, you shall shoot me the five eggs in two through the middle." 
The hunter aimed and shot the eggs, all five as the father had desired, and that at one shot. He certainly must have had some of the powder for shooting round corners. Now it's your turn, said the father to the fourth son. You shall sow the eggs together again, and the young birds that are inside them as well, and you must do it so that they are not hurt by the shot. The tailor brought his needle and sewed them as his father wished. When he'd done this, the thief had to climb up the tree again and carry them to the nest and put them back again under the bird without her being aware of it. The bird sat her full time and after a few days the young ones crept out and they had a red line round their necks where they had been sewn together by the tailor. Well, said the old man to his sons, I begin to think you are worth more than green clover. You've used your time well and learned something good. I can't say which of you deserves the most praise. That will be proved if you have but an early opportunity of using your talents. Not long after this, there was a great uproar in the country for the king's daughter was carried off by a dragon. The king was full of trouble about it, both by day and night, and caused it to be proclaimed that whoever brought her back should have her to wed. The four brothers said to each other, This would be a fine opportunity for us to show what we can do, and resolved to go forth together and liberate the king's daughter. I will soon know where she is, said the astronomer, and looked through his telescope and said, I see her already. She is far away from here, on a rock in the sea, and the dragon is beside her, watching her. Then he went to the king and asked for a ship for himself and his brothers, and sailed with them over the sea until they came to the rock. There the king's daughter was sitting and the dragon was lying asleep on her lap. The hunter said, I dare not fire, I should kill the beautiful maiden at the same time. Then I will try my art, said the thief, and he crept over and stole her away from under the dragon, so quietly and dexterously that the monster never noticed it, but went on snoring. Full of joy, they hurried off with her on board and steered out into the open sea. But the dragon, who when he awoke had found no princess there, followed them and came snorting angrily through the air. Just as he was circling above the ship and about to descend on it, the hunter shouldered his gun and shot him to the heart. The monster fell down dead, but was so large and powerful that his fall shattered the whole ship. Fortunately, however, they laid hold of a couple of planks and swam about the wide sea. Then again they were in great peril, but the tailor, who was not idle, took his wondrous needle and with a few stitches sewed the planks together and they seated themselves upon them, and collected together all the fragments of the vessel. Then he sewed these so skilfully together 
that in a very short time the ship was once more seaworthy and they could go home again in safety. When the king once more saw his daughter, there were great rejoicings. He said to the four brothers, One of you shall have her as wife, but which of you it is to be you must settle among yourselves. Then a warm contest arose among them, for each of them preferred his own claim. The astronomers said, If I had not seen the princess, all your arts would have been useless. So she is mine. The thief said, What would have been the use of your seeing if I had not got her away from the dragon? So she is mine. The hunter said, You and the princess and all of you would have been torn to pieces by the dragon if my ball had not hit him. So she is mine. The tailor said, And if I, by my art, had not sewn the ship together again, you would all of you have been miserably drowned. So she is mine. Then the king uttered this saying, Each of you has an equal right, and as all of you cannot have the maiden, none of you shall have her. But I will give to each of you, as a reward, half a kingdom. The brothers were pleased with this decision and said, It is better thus than that we should be at variance with each other. Then each of them received half a kingdom, and they lived with their father in the greatest happiness as long as it pleased God. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 130. One Eye, Two Eyes and Three Eyes. There was once a woman who had three daughters, the eldest of whom was called One Eye, because she had only one eye in the middle of her forehead, and the second, Two Eyes, because she had two eyes like other folks, and the youngest, Three Eyes, because she had three eyes, and her third eye was also in the centre of her forehead. However, as two eyes saw just as other human beings did, her sisters and her mother could not endure her. They said to her, You with your two eyes are no better than the common people. You do not belong to us. They pushed her about and threw old clothes to her and gave her nothing to eat but what they left, and they did everything that they could to make her unhappy. It came to pass that two eyes had to go out into the fields and tend the goat, but she was still quite hungry because her sisters had given her so little to eat. So she sat down on a ridge and began to weep, so bitterly that two streams ran down from her eyes. And once she was looking up in her grief, a woman was standing beside her who said, why are you weeping, little two eyes? Two eyes answered, Have I not reason to weep, when I have two eyes like other people, and my sisters and mother hate me for it, and push me from one corner to another, throw old clothes at me, and give me nothing to eat but the scraps they leave? Today 
they have given me so little that I am still quite hungry. Then the wise woman said, Wipe away your tears, two eyes, and I will tell you something to stop you ever suffering from hunger again. Just say to your goat, Bleat, my little goat, bleat. Cover the table with something to eat. And then a clean, well-spread little table will stand before you with the most delicious food upon it, of which you may eat as much as you like. And when you have had enough and have no more need of the little table, just say, Bleat, bleat, my little goat, I pray, and take the table quite away. And then it will vanish again from your sight. Then the wise woman departed. But two eyes thought, I must instantly try and see if what she said is true, for I am far too hungry. And she said, Bleat, my little goat, bleat. Cover the table with something to eat. And scarcely had she spoken the words than a little table covered with a white cloth was standing there, and on it was a plate with a knife and fork and a silver spoon, and the most delicious food was there also, warm and smoking as if it had just come out of the kitchen. Then Two Eyes said the shortest prayer she knew, Lord God, be with us always. Amen. And helped herself to some food and enjoyed it. And when she was satisfied, she said, as the wise woman had taught her, Bleat, bleat, my little goat, I pray, and take the table quite away. And immediately the little table and everything on it was gone again. That is a delightful way of keeping house, thought Two Eyes, and was quite glad and happy. In the evening, when she went home with her goat, she found a small earthenware dish with some food which her sisters had set ready for her, but she did not touch it. Next day, she again went out with her goat and left the few bits of broken bread which had been handed to her lying untouched. The first and second time that she did this, her sisters did not remark it at all. But as it happened every time, they did observe it and said, There is something wrong about two eyes. She always leaves her food untasted and she used to eat up everything that was given her. She must have discovered other ways of getting food. In order that they might learn the truth, they resolved to send one eye with two eyes when she went to drive her goat to the pasture to observe what two eyes did when she was there and whether anyone brought with her anything to eat and drink. So when two eyes set out the next time, one eye went to her and said, I will go with you to the pasture and see that the goat is well taken care of and driven where there is food. But two eyes knew what was in one eye's mind and drove the goat into high grass and said, Come, one eye, we will sit down, and I will sing something to you. One eye sat down and was tired with the unaccustomed walk and the heat of the sun, and two eyes sang constantly, One eye, are you awake? One eye, are you asleep? Until one eye shut her one eye and fell asleep, and as soon as two eyes saw that one eye was fast asleep and could discover nothing, 
She said, Bleat, my little goat, bleat. Cover the table with something to eat. And seated herself at her table, and ate and drank until she was satisfied. And then she again cried, Bleat, bleat, my little goat, I pray, and take the table quite away. And in an instant, all was gone. Two eyes now awakened one eye and said, One eye, you want to take care of the goat and go to sleep while you are doing it, and in the meantime the goat might run all over the world. Come, let us go home again. So they went home, and again two eyes let her little dish stand untouched, and one eye could not tell her mother why she would not eat it, and to excuse herself, and said, I fell asleep when I was out. Next day the mother said to three eyes, This time you shall go and observe if two eyes eats anything when she is out, and if anyone fetches her food and drink, for she must eat and drink in secret. So three eyes went to two eyes and said, I will go with you and see if the goat is taken proper care of and driven where there is food. But two eyes knew what was in three eyes' mind and drove the goat into high grass and said, We will sit down and I will sing something to you, three eyes. Three eyes sat down and was tired with the walk and with the heat of the sun, and two eyes began the same song as before and sang, Three eyes, are you waking? But then instead of singing, Three eyes, are you sleeping? As she ought to have done, she thoughtlessly sang, Two eyes, are you sleeping? And sang all the time, Three eyes, are you waking? Two eyes, are you sleeping? Then two of the eyes, which three eyes had, shut and fell asleep. But the third, as it had not been named in the song, did not sleep. It is true that three eyes shut it, but only in her cunning to pretend it was asleep too. But it blinked and could see everything very well. And when Two Eyes thought that Three Eyes was fast asleep, she used her little charm. Bleat, my little goat, bleat. Cover the table with something to eat. And ate and drank as much as her heart desired, and then ordered the table to go away again. Bleat, bleat, my little goat, I pray. And take the table quite away. And Three Eyes saw everything. Then Two Eyes came to her, waked her, and said... Have you been asleep, Three Eyes? You are a good caretaker. Come, we will go home. And when they got home, Two Eyes again did not eat, and Three Eyes said to the mother, Now I know why that high-minded thing there does not eat. When she is out, she says to the goat, Bleat, my little goat, bleat. Cover the table with something to eat. And then a little table appears before her, covered with the best of food, much better than any we have here. And when she has eaten all she wants, she says, Bleat, bleat, my little goat, I pray, and take the table quite away. And all disappears. I watched everything closely. She put two of my eyes to sleep by using a spell, but luckily the one in my forehead kept awake. 
Then the envious mother cried, Do you want to fare better than we do? The desire shall pass away. And she fetched a butcher's knife and thrust it into the heart of the goat, which fell down dead. When Two Eyes saw that, she went out full of trouble, seated herself on the ridge of grass at the edge of the field, and wept bitter tears. Suddenly, the wise woman once more stood by her side and said, Two Eyes, why are you weeping? Have I not reason to weep, she answered. The goat which covered the table for me every day when I spoke your charm has been killed by my mother, and now I shall again have to bear hunger and want. The wise woman said, Two Eyes, I will give you a piece of good advice. Ask your sisters to give you the entrails of the slaughtered goat, and bury them in the ground in front of the house, and your fortune will be made. Then she vanished, and Two Eyes went home, and said to her sisters, Dear sisters, do give me some part of my goat. I don't wish for what is good, but give me the entrails. Then they laughed and said, If that's all you want, you can have it. So Two Eyes took the entrails and buried them quietly in the evening in front of the house door, as the wise woman had counselled her to do. Next morning, when they all awoke and went to the house door, there stood a strangely magnificent tree with leaves of silver and fruit of gold hanging among them, so that in all the wide world there was nothing more beautiful or precious. They did not know how the tree could have come there during the night, but Two Eyes saw that it had grown up out of the entrails of the goat, for it was standing on the exact spot where she had buried them. Then the mother said to One Eye, Climb up, my child, and gather some of the fruit of the tree for us. One eye climbed up, but when she was about to get hold of one of the golden apples, the branch escaped from her hands, and that happened each time so that she could not pluck a single apple, no matter how hard she tried. Then said the mother, Three eyes, you climb up. You with your three eyes can look about you better than one eye. One eye slipped down and three eyes climbed up. Three Eyes was not more skilful, and though she tried, the golden apples always escaped her. At length the mother grew impatient and climbed up herself, but could get hold of the fruit no better than one eye and three eyes, for she always clutched empty air. Then said Two Eyes, I will just go up, perhaps I may succeed better. The sisters cried, You indeed with your two eyes, what can you do? But two eyes climbed up, and the golden apples did not get out of her way, but came into her hand of their own will, so that she could pluck them one after the other, and brought a whole apron full down with her. The mother took them away from her, and instead of treating poor two eyes any better for this, she and One Eye and Three Eyes were only envious because Two Eyes alone had been able to get the fruit 
and they treated her still more cruelly. It so happened that once, when they were all standing together by the tree, a young knight came up. Quick, two eyes, cried the two sisters, creep under this and don't disgrace us. And with all speed they turned an empty barrel, which was standing close by the tree over poor two eyes, and they pushed the golden apples which she had been gathering under it too. When the knight came nearer, he was a handsome lord who stopped and admired the magnificent gold and silver tree, and said to the two sisters, To whom does this fine tree belong? Any one who would bestow one branch of it on me might in return for it ask whatsoever he desired. Then one eye and three eyes replied that the tree belonged to them, and that they would give him a branch. They both took great trouble, but they were not able to do it, for the branches and the fruit both moved away from them every time. Then said the knight, It is very strange that the tree should belong to you, and that you should still not be able to break a piece off. They again asserted that the tree was their property. While they were saying so, two eyes rolled out a couple of gold apples from under the barrel to the feet of the knight, for she was vexed with one eye and three eyes for not speaking the truth. When the knight saw the apples, he was astonished and asked where they came from. One eye and three eyes answered that they had another sister who was not allowed to show herself, for she had only two eyes like any common person. The knight, however, desired to see her, and cried, Two eyes, come forth. Then two eyes, quite comforted, came from beneath the barrel, and the knight was surprised at her great beauty, and said, You, two eyes, can certainly break off a branch from the tree for me. Yes, replied two eyes, that I certainly shall be able to do, for the tree belongs to me. And she climbed up, and with the greatest ease broke off a branch with beautiful silver leaves and golden fruit, and gave it to the knight. Then said the knight, Two eyes, what shall I give you for it? Alas, answered Two Eyes, I suffer from hunger and thirst, grief and want from early morning till late at night. If you would take me with you and deliver me from these things, I should be happy. So the knight lifted Two Eyes onto his horse and took her home with him to his father's castle, and there he gave her beautiful clothes and meat and drink to her heart's content. And as he loved her so much, he married her, and the wedding was solemnized with great rejoicing. When Two Eyes was thus carried away by the handsome knight, her two sisters grudged her good fortune in downright earnest. The wonderful tree, however, still remains with us, thought they, and even if we can gather no fruit from it, still everyone will stand still and look at it, and come to us and admire it. Who knows what good things may be in store for us. But next morning the tree had vanished and all their hopes were at an end. And when Two Eyes looked out of the window of her own little room, 
to her great delight, it was standing in front of it, and so it had followed her. Two eyes lived a long time in happiness. Once two poor women came to her in her castle and begged for alms. She looked in their faces and recognised her sisters, one eye and three eyes, who had fallen into such poverty that they had to wander about and beg their bread from door to door. Two eyes, however, made them welcome and was kind to them and took care of them so that they both with all their hearts repented the evil that they had done their sister in their youth. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 131. Fair Cotrine and Piff Paff Poultry. Good day, Father Helenth. Many thanks, Piff Paff Poultry. May I be allowed to have your daughter? Oh yes, if Mother Malco, Milch Cow, Brother High and Mighty, Sister Cassistrout, and Fair Catrinelge are willing, you can have her. Where is Mother Malco then? She is in the cow house milking the cow. Good day, Mother Malco. Many thanks, Piff Paff Poultry. May I be allowed to have your daughter? Oh yes, if Father Helenthi, Brother High and Mighty, Sister Cassistrout, and Fair Catrinelge are willing, you can have her. Where is Brother High and Mighty then? He is in the room chopping some wood. Good day, Brother High and Mighty. Many thanks, Piff Paff Poultry. May I be allowed to have your sister? Oh yes. If Father Helenthi, Mother Malco, Sister Cassistrout, and Fair Catrinelge are willing, you can have her. Where is Sister Cassistrout then? She is in the garden cutting cabbages. Good day, Sister Cassistrout. Many thanks, Piff Paff Poultry. May I be allowed to have your sister? Oh yes, if Father Helenthi, Mother Malco, Brother High and Mighty, and Fair Catrinelge are willing, you may have her. Where is Fair Catrinelge, then? She is in the room, counting out her farthings. Good day, Fair Catrinelge. Many thanks, Piff Paff Poultry. Will you be my bride? Oh, yes, if Father Helenthi, Mother Malco, Brother High and Mighty, and Sister Cassistrout are willing... I am ready. Fair Catrinelge, how much dowry do you have? Fourteen farthings in ready money, three and a half groschen, owing to me, half a pound of dried apples, a handful of fried bread, and a handful of spices, and many other things are mine. Have I not a dowry fine? Piff Paff Paltry, what is your trade? Are you a tailor? Something better. A shoemaker. Something better. A husbandman. Something better. A joiner. Something better. A smith. Something better. A miller. Something better. Perhaps a broom maker. 
Yes, that's what I am. Is it not a fine trade? Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 132. The Fox and the Horse. A peasant had a faithful horse which had grown old and could do no more work, so his master would no longer give him anything to eat and said, I can certainly make no more use of you, but I still mean well by you if you prove yourself still strong enough to bring me a lion here. I will maintain you, but now take yourself away out of my stable. And with that he chased him into the open country. The horse was sad, and went to the forest to seek a little protection there from the weather. There a fox met him and said, Why do you hang your head so, and go about all alone? Alas, replied the horse, greed and fidelity do not dwell together in one house. My master has forgotten what services I have performed for him for so many years, and because I can no longer plough well, he will give me no more food and has driven me out. Without giving you a chance? asked the fox. The chance was a bad one. He said if I was still strong enough to bring him a lion, he would keep me, but he well knows that I cannot do that. The fox said, I will help you. Just lay yourself down, stretch yourself out as if you were dead, and do not stir. The horse did as the fox desired, and the fox went to the lion, who had his den not far off, and said, A dead horse is lying outside there. Just come with me. You can have a rich meal. The lion went with him, and when they were both standing by the horse, the fox said, After all, it is not very comfortable for you here, I tell you. What I will fasten it to you by the tail, and then you can drag it into your cave and devour it in peace. This advice pleased the lion. He lay down, and in order that the fox might tie the horse fast to him, he kept quite quiet. But the fox tied the lion's legs together with the horse's tail, and twisted and fastened all so well and so strongly that no strength could break it. When he had finished his work, he tapped the horse on the shoulder and said, Pull, white horse, pull. Then up sprang the horse at once and drew the lion away with him. The lion began to roar so that all the birds in the forest flew out in terror, but the horse let him roar and drew him and dragged him over the country to his master's door. When the master saw the lion, he was of a better mind, and said to the horse, You shall stay with me, and farewell. And he gave him plenty to eat, until he died. <laughs>